Hey, hey. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Not bad. Glad to hear it. Almost fully recovered. You were sick, or you, or is your back still bothering you? No, I blew out my knee in a, on one leg and broke my toe on the other. <laughs> what the fuck happened? Somebody's been playing voodoo dolls with two true freaks, people. That's all I gotta say. I was coming off a, coming off a ladder, and I, I have a messed up knee from a band injury, jumping off a stage like an idiot, like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was jumping off a ladder at work, and I just came down at the wrong angle. Oh, shit. So I've been wearing a knee brace, and... And here I was expect, expecting you to say that you took an arrow to the knee or something. <laughs> it felt like it for a while. <laughs> the toe was worse. The toe was ugly as hell. I dropped a cutting board on that. I did that both those things on Halloween night, too. Ah, shit. Worst possible time. I was working, and, like, by the end of the night, I was limping on both sides. It was, I was walking, like, um, somebody from the original Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah, that sort of shamble that they had. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a total, I had to just sort of, like, arc my whole body, or it was, it was hilarious, and I was in such a good mood, because I was going home to watch Ash vs. Evil Dead that I didn't even really worry about the pain till the next day <laughs> yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you about that um like how that like how do you how, how are you liking that show because i haven't seen a whole lot of positive stuff about that on facebook oh really i love it it's it's like almost like perfection hmm. i mean the first episode of it had sam raimi direct it and i'm sure it had twice the budget and i'm sure it had twice the time to film it mm-hmm. if not way more than twice the time a typical for a a pilot yeah yeah you had a mini movie there and then after that you don't have sam raimi directing and you have a tv show budget you know i mean they're they've already got a second season sam raimi is responsible for hercules you know and xena he he knows that like eventually a tv series has got to go into lower budget and (laughs) And you gotta like spread out your special effects and stuff. So it's a TV show now. It's definitely it's basically an R-rated Xena or Hercules, <laughs> but better written and R-rated. Yeah, well, you know the thing. I remember that there was uh, call it a false sense of security, but I remember when The Walking Dead first started. There, you had these people who were basically creaming their pants all over Facebook about the pilot episode. Yeah. And the thing about the pilot episode is that this is going to be the most produced episode, the most well-funded episode, the most well-rehearsed episode. This literally is the best it's ever going to get. Ever going to ever going to get. It, well, it could get it production-wise. It could get better. You could get a really good like writing team that's on a roll, you know, and all the actors and everything's working together right but that's not what happened with walking dead (laughs) yeah no it's uh over they've got a few people in like greg nicotero is definitely like creatively influencing it and stuff like that but they keep turning people over and it's a soap opera now i watch it but it's not um doesn't hold the great place in my you know i i watch it almost as an afterthought you know i watch it like tuesday or wednesday i don't like 
get in front of I could give a shit if Glenn is dead. I'm more concerned with the comics. <laughs> well, Basically. the uh, the show kind of killed the comic for me. You know, I mean, I was reading the comic and I was loving it up until about. In fact, I think I can give you the exact issue number, like issue 48. To me, that was The Walking Dead when it peaked. And ever since that time, I just don't feel the comic it's, is as good as it used to be. It, 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 you know, by 48, I mean, that was about as ugly as you're going to get. It can get uglier, but you're never going to get ugly past that first real big ugly in 48. But the storyline they got going now is really good. They get, they've worked them, worked themselves into a nice pickle in it and it's on a different you know they did the fast forward five years or whatever three years or something like that oh wow and their new enemy now is it's negan these days isn't it or no negan's done that that whole thing's played out in three years in the past well negan uh negan's still around hmm they didn't kill Negan. They they decided to take the high road and lock him up. And he's locked in a cell. They've got a whole community built. You know, they, they, they routinely go out and herd up all the walkers and send them off in a different direction. And they have it all... They've got it all pretty much locked down. And then another group of sort of more nomadic hunter-gatherer people that live like in with the walkers they they dress as walkers and live in with the walkers basically the leader of that group is uh, you know d- just doesn't think society is possible and wants to has them sort of at a at a crossroads where she has this massive herd of walkers that her people could just you know drop at any time on on their community and uh, that's sort of where they where they sit right. And and then she went into the community during their yearly fest, you know, fall festival, mm-hmm. and beheaded a bunch of people just to prove that that they were weak and nailed their put their heads up on posts. And uh, so now the whole community wants to go to war, but Rick knows that if they go to war with these people, they're instantly gonna, you know unleash like a million walkers at him so they're at this weird point where they're trying to figure out what to do rick is basically gone evil <laughs> rick mm. is rick is is you know the leader and he's it's it's basically now almost like a game of thrones type of meditation on the on what power does to you know having to wield power does to you and rick's not power mad but just you know the decisions that he has to make are are are, they're getting to him, huh? Yeah, it's yeah, it's he's getting there. He's getting there. Actually, the last end of the last episode or issue might have been Rick's ultimate turn. <laughs> but the I, I like where the comics are going. The TV show, I'm curious with how they do it, but it like doesn't it doesn't feel like a zombie story to me anymore. It feels like a soap opera. Hmm. Well, and the my who watch it are partly at fault because a lot of the people who watch it are basically part of the who's going to die this week club. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're judging the show on. Is somebody going to die? Is somebody going to die? It's like, why don't you just follow along with the story? <laughs> See where it goes instead of like, you know, oh, somebody's going to die this episode. Nobody's died in a couple episodes. It's just like, 
I, I just hate that shit. <laughs> well, my I, I could be wrong, but my understanding was that they'd gone through Frank Darabont, and then there was some other showrunner. They replaced him too, and now I don't even know who the, who who's doing the thing now. But is that right, or is it? Or... I think what's her name is still. I, I mean, Kirkman's still involved. I know Nicotero's writing and directing and stuff like that, and I know. Um... Oh, what what what's her name? Gail. I wanted to say Kathleen Kennedy, but I mean uh, Gail Ann Hurd. I think she's still involved. Mm. I think she's the big, the Hollywood name now. Uh, I think Darabont's long gone, and she's the one who stuck around. Yeah, he was gone. Like I think partway through season two. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why season two. They say that's part of the reason why season two kind of sucks. Um, I don't know, but uh, that's well, about. They got, the t- they got their budget. Sl- you can see budgets get slashed in these shows. Ever since we started going through Star Trek, you know, with a fine tooth comb, it's always been. I, I've started noticing that with TV shows, where the where the budget, you know, gets gets shown. That's why I'm I'm pretty excited about a new t- Star Trek TV show. Even if it does have parts of the new Trek people working on it, they're going to be forced to make a TV show, so they can't can't fuck around like they do in the movies. Right, and that was uh, that's actually something that I hadn't really bothered to look into. Like, how tied in with New Trek is that show? The Orky Orky, Orky is not being involved, which is good. He was the writer mm-hmm. of. Of especially in the darkness, he's he's gone. His partner guy is on, but he's on and he's a producer, you know. So, uh. yeah. But the thing is, with a with a with a TV show like that, you got to bring in, you got to have a lot of writers, you got to have a lot of people working on it. You got your limited budget, and you got the same actors there week after week after week. That is what helps a lot because they're they're going to be living in their parts, and you know, and and I also have uh, I've also seen Star Trek TV series start out real shitty, you know, with a with a maybe even a bad premise and and awkward stories and not working, and then get their shit together by season two or three one could say that that, you know one could actually argue that's star trek's legacy on yeah that's next on tv it's the only time when it was the opposite of that was pretty much the original series where it went downhill as time went by and uh but that's because they started it off going we're gonna spend that and mission impossible they were like we're gonna take these two shows and spend a lot of extra money on these to make them more cinematic, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and they did. But even Star Trek, you know, to to maintain the special effects and stuff, they had to re. It was really, it was touch and go from the beginning to the end of of the original Star Trek series of budgeting and getting things done and and all that. And that actually is something people complain about in Hollywood, but that's sort of. A good thing sometimes, you know, having having people, you know, behind you lashing the whip and having no money to do something and making people have to be creative to pull stuff off. And 
Well, you know, my I'm not trying to take anything away from the movies, and I mean all movies, not just New Trek, but I mean all of the movies. I'm not trying to take anything away from those, but I think that Star Trek... Honestly, I would say the original series, but really Star Trek at large, it's at its most fertile, its most pure when it's on TV. You know how like the native habitat for Star Wars is always going to be big screen cinema. I don't give a shit how good uh, Rebels is or Clone Wars or any of that other fucking bullshit. To me, Star Wars is feature film. Always has been, always will be. Star Trek, there's something about the weekly episodic format that just plays into the imagination factor and the possibilities yeah. that Star Trek offers. It's, it's not the, available with a feature film, in my opinion. It's the closest thing to the sci-fi short story that you're going to get nowadays. Yeah. I mean, besides a sci-fi short story, which are not, a, you know, they're not a thing nowadays like they used to be where, you know, there were, you know, you would get them in magazines and comics and stuff like that. Nah, you know, it's, 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 just sort of not a thing so mm. well uh my hope for this show is see there was a point there where I, I i swear to god it was up is down left is right because you know we were living in a world where star wars was one of the most popular shows that was on tv and everybody was losing their minds over the next star trek movie and I mean, the cognitive dissonance that existed in me as a fan from, I would say, circa 2009 until really until it bottomed out with Into Darkness. I just didn't know what the fuck to do with myself, you know, and it feels like we're starting to get back to some sort of an equilibrium. I hope where Star Trek is going back to television and Star Wars is going back to feature film and we're starting to get things back to normal. That's what I'm hoping. I, I'm 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 giving a lot of credit to us pod not just us podcasters, but the internet and, and all the bitching that people gripe about. And uh I think they're 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 learning to read that bitching as not just noise and looking and going like, All right, a lot of it is noise. Most of it is noise. Yeah, but there is a little bit of I'm, I'm seeing a lot of things that, that that people on our podcast have articulated in the last few years starting to like yeah, I just saw that that article by Mark Millar who's like one of the worst um, as far as guilty of of you know edging things up and he's just like I saw man basically I think it was more of a cynical plug for his new comic which is sunny and you know, um, positive super, you know, superhero, um, driven by good ideals and, and stuff like that. Uh, it seemed self-serving. His article did, you know, he's like, ah, I saw man of steel and something wasn't set and right for it. It made sense that Zod killed or that Superman killed Zod, but that's not what I want to see. Blah, blah, blah. We need this and this and this and this. And it's just like, yeah, but you were the one who was like shitting all over that stuff a few months ago, and that mean that to me means that he's just an opportunist, and he sees maybe the tide turning, you know, maybe sees understands that people don't want or, or are sick of, you know, the the superhero based in reality. Well, see, actually, I went the other way with that. I what I interpreted from that, maybe I'm wrong, but. What I took from his criticism was 
basically sour grapes. You know, the, uh, oh, there was some of that too. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, prior to the announcement that yeah, a reboot is definitely <laughs> certainly going to happen, and here are the people that are going to be doing it. It's going to have this, this, and this. Uh, he pitched. He was one of, as it turns out, several people who pitched Warner Brothers on the uh, on the concept of a reboot, and he was working with, I think Matthew Vaughn, whoever it was. I think I think he directed Kick Ass. And okay. yeah, yeah. And he basically had this, this. Uh, I think because it's today, it's everything's got to be a fucking trilogy, and so he had this trilogy of films that base of Superman films that spanned like a hundred thousand years, and it basically starts off on Krypton like ten thousand years ago, and then takes you right up to the destruction of Earth like a hundred thousand years from now when the sun just goes fucking berserk. Yeah, no to that too. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's just like I, I, I just want, and even not even for me, I think a Superman. Fi- I mean, the problem, I the big problem I have, and I mean, honestly, I'm fine. I I hate Zack Snyder, so any of his movies, I'm I'm definitely biased against anything he does. So I'm going into the theater. Okay, I get to mock this or whatever. But it's no big skin off my back, you know, how he screws it up as much. I don't get that personally involved in it. But if I was, like, in charge of putting Superman out there, I would be putting Superman right in the in the window of, you know, 8 to, to 13-year-old kids. That's who I would make that movie appeal to. And... Because they're, I mean, I think they're the ones that really Superman really is, like, speak could potentially speak to the most, and they just don't get a Superman. They haven't gotten a Superman movie since you know since the Christopher Reeves ones went goofy, which were goofy. But you know, an eight-year-old kid would have loved Superman three. Probably not. Or wait, which one had Richard Pryor? Probably not Superman 3. Superman 3, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there would have been elements of it that they didn't like, but they would have in, in, enjoyed it anyway. And it's like nowadays would just the, – we could use our film sophistication to f- make better movies like that. But, I mean, if you made it for an 8- to 12-year-old kid and made it, you know, smart enough for adults, I think people would – chow it down like guardians of the galaxy and celebrate and but you would get you know i mean since it takes so long for apparently for superman films to get approved and made and stuff there's whole generations of kids who are never going to go see uh like a happy superman and and zack snyder's movies are like well we're we're moving towards that superman who's just sort of fit in comfortable in his skin and and do it, you know, doing good. The Boy Scout. We're moving towards that. We have to go through the whole like everybody hates him, and you know, blah blah blah, and the angst with his powers. Well, that takes, you know, if you're going to spread that over movies and movies, that's going to take almost a decade to do. Kids are going to grow up in that time, you know. Mm. So if you do get a functioning Superman, it's for for, you know, like Scott Gardner's grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> When you could probably be pumping out a decent Superman movie every year or two, you know, that's just, that's fun, you know, and 
it it has so much there's so much baggage attached to superman that it's just so much of it is just imaginary i'm sorry i mean i there was a point it's less so now thank god but there was a point when there was like real stigma involved in doing anything superman and I just I don't sense that anymore. I mean, like the same no, thing no. I think was true of Batman. For like people tend to forget this, but there was a point in time when, you know, Batman, like the the concept of a new Batman movie. I mean, that wasn't that was not a serious Nobody was proposition. Get excited about it, yeah. Yeah, that was a punchline, you know. And so I don't know. I mean, I I don't think that Superman has quite the same stigma to him that he that he used to have, but. You know, I think Superman's real problem, and I think there's a much bigger problem with DC Comics, not so much Warner Brothers, but at DC. I think the people at DC, I used to think that, you know what, they just don't understand this character. That's the problem. And I've since come to understand that, you know what, no. Actually, I think Scott Gardner got it right whenever he said they don't like Superman. No, they don't like – they they don't don't – they don't like him through not understanding him. They don't understand that they can't get it right. And they're just like, fuck it. It's it's not our problem. It's not our fault. And it is their fault, you know? Mm. Well, I mean, if somebody handed me over the keys to like a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar franchise, like like basically if somebody from Disney, this will never happen, but if somebody from Disney knocks on my door and says, here, we want you to handle Mickey Mouse. Well, that's like saying... Oh, we want you to be president of the United States. You can take the job. It's going to age you twice the age, <laughs> twice the time, twice or three times the time that you spend doing it, doing it, trying to to manage all the things attached to it and make everybody happy. And oh my God, yeah, and all it's, the all the dueling agendas. I don't. Know. It's it's one of those things. I can't help but think that this job, and I speak here of making Superman comics, this job is not as complicated as they're making it, you know, and they're the sooner or later, you know, what you kind of have to figure is they just don't like this character. It really a lot is of the things that they probably think won't work. They haven't tried. You know what I mean? Right. Try it. <laughs> See if it works. You know, it probably will work. It, you well, know, even it, if it doesn't, it's not going to be any worse than the shit you're doing right now. Then what's going on now? The free fall. And I was at my comic shop yesterday and my comic shop owner is a miserable prick, but he loves me. I've known him for 30 years now, ever since I moved to Rochester, basically. And uh, it was funny. The first person that warmed his heart that I saw was Scott Gardner when he lived here. He and Scott Gardner would have conversations, and now he listens to the podcast and stuff. So I went in yesterday, and I hadn't been in in a couple months. And for the first time in since the 90s, I went in and bought a stack. I went up to the counter and he was like, with my 20% discount, it was $75, which was, I was not planning on spending, you know, I can't afford to spend $75, but I was like, you know what? Fuck this, man. This is a celebration. I have not been able to go and pull $75 of new comics. And I don't know how long, granted, they're all Star Wars comics, and he's just like he's just like, dude, you're not the bandwagon type of guy, but I'm telling you, the, I cannot. He cannot keep Star Wars comics on his shelf; they fly off his shelf every Wednesday. Hmm. And you That's know, good. and right up at the front, they've got 
all the number, you know, Star Wars number one, Princess Leia number one, Chewbacca number one, all set up at the front, you know, on their third and fourth printing. And he says they whipped through those two. Now, was it I must I must ask, was it was it that way in the Dark Horse days or is this a more recent type of thing? This is un. He's. This is unprecedented. He said since. What the since fuck? Marvel Dude, comics origi- originally had Marvel Star Wars comics were keeping Marvel afloat <laughs> a good time through the eighties. The eighties were would have been a tough time, tougher time for Marvel if it hadn't been for Star Wars. It was. It was holding up the whole whole uh, game for a while, and it looks like it's doing it again. And it's bringing. He's like. He's like. I've got dozens of new people who come in here now, to buy the Star Wars comics, and now they're starting to look around. He's like. Uh, and he moved, from a from like a mall, into a warehouse down by railroad tracks, <laughs> way Jeez. off the beaten path. And Jeez. his business has gone up since then. Jeez. Well, yeah, that was were... smiling and laughing. Something I never see. Well, like the reason I ask is because there's something Marvel has a strange Midas touch. I've noticed where, well, that's probably not the best way to put it. Cause that's actually a curse if you think about it, but they, they have this funny, this funny habit of success I've noticed. And that's only gotten, and that was really true of Marvel studios but once they were acquired by Disney, and I mean Marvel, Lock, Stock, and Barrel was acquired by right. Disney. Even Marvel Comics now, they've taken what should be loser ideas or at least risky ventures. And somehow they found a way to turn this stuff into very creatively and God knows. Well, I don't know so much about creatively, but very commercially successful uh, propositions. I think, I think comics are the place to go goofy like that you know to go risky i mean they're they unlike a movie the budget is never is always the same yeah. you know yeah. pretty much with a comic depending no matter what's blowing up or or going <coughs> going on in it you know so you know you might as well you might as well you're not gonna lose billions of dollars on it so you might as well try because it seems like the 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 weirder the ideas are the more people like them and frankly the reason you're reading comics is to get weirder you know i mean there's there's stuff that's like you know indie personal drama comics and stuff that work Mm -hmm. but that's just not the the main the main gears that make comics work. It's for fantastic, outrageous stuff, you know, and you can have all different flavors of that from, you know, more realistic to more out outrageous or unrealistic. But I think, I don't know. I, you know, I've been tumbling story ideas for things around in my head. And I think one of the greatest problems with it is like that uh, I'll often like, stop and be like, ah, that's not a very realistic idea <laughs> and drop it and be like, ah, that couldn't really happen in real life. And it's just like, I, I, I think maybe the secret is not letting that hamper you. <laughs> There's enough people doing that with trying to do that with like real stuff, <laughs> portray it as not being real or portraying not real stuff in, in like the news. You might as well not try to be completely factual or stick to reality. 
That's why I loved um, um, did you ever see Inglorious Bastards? No. Uh, uh, are you planning on seeing it? At some point, yeah, probably. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a huge priority. I, I, yeah, I, by all means, spoil it. I don't give a damn. I, I don't want to because it's so wonderful. But basically, something happens at the end of that movie that it's just like, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> this is history. <laughs> that can't happen. That didn't happen. And then it's just like, well, fuck it. This is great, you know. And and. Uh, and it, it's almost like this liberating moment. <laughs> it's it's great, but um. Well, the um, my impression. Again, there's really nothing I I I can hang this on, but I'm gonna lay out a little bit of a conspiracy theory for you. And when it's all over, if you think I'm completely wacko, then say okay. so. Right. All right. My view of it though is this. Starting in. Uh, what like I don't even know what like 1990 1991 basically whenever it was that Heir to the Empire came out the novel mm -hmm. Heir to the Empire from 1983 to about 1990 I, I think you could fairly say that George Lucas was kind of holding Star Wars at arm's length you know he wasn't I don't think he was as personally invested in that as he had been whenever he was actually making the trilogy, right? I, I know behind the scenes he was in a deep, dark depression. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, there you go. He and his wife broke up. Yeah. And it wasn't pretty. No, it wasn't. And it wasn't until he didn't come out of that until episode one. Episode one was him coming – it was him like going like, I'm going to – I knew somebody who was really good friends with his ex-wife. And the, and and it was funny because all up to episode they would always be like oh, George isn't doing too good because I'd be always like I don't want to hear about her what's George doing you know is he doing anything uh, he doesn't do anything he's just looked at it. and then after a while the guy goes well actually he's starting to write his script for for a prequel trilogy to it he's gonna write it all by himself and he's gonna direct it and he's having kind of a midlife crisis right now and everybody's a little worried about him. <laughs> And that was in – that had to be about 1995, 96 that I heard that, somewhere around there. Hmm. Well, that actually kind of ties in with my conspiracy theory then. But my my view of it was always that after the divorce, he was basically defeated, you know, just on, on like this kind of dark personal level. He was kind of just put a fork in George Lucas because he's kind of he's kind of done. And then starting in 1991 or like I say, whatever friggin year it was that Heir to the Empire came out. He started at least reappraising Star Wars and realizing, you know what? The fan base is still there, like somehow unbeknownst to him, maybe unbeknownst to everybody. The Star Wars fan base endured. And so that, I think, was maybe a, a catalyst for George Lucas to kind of go through a little bit of a creative renaissance. And I think the culmination of that was the prequel trilogy, which was so fucking poorly received that I think he kind of made up his mind right around then. You know what? I'm not going to do any more Star Wars movies. I mean, these yeah. fuckers are always... Uh, smack talking me no matter what I do fuck it I'm I'm just not going to do it anymore Star Wars I'm just going to do TV shows and that may have been Star Wars fate 
forevermore, you know? Except that fucking documentary, The People vs. George Lucas, came out. And I think George Lucas saw that. And I think that was the moment he decided to sell Lucasfilm. I think that's when he decided to just, it's time to put the dice down. Because if you, if you actually watch that documentary, I mean, it is fucking vitriolic. Well, you know, he was also... I was almost on that documentary. Oh, really? The, the filmmaker, when we, when Scott and I first started out, he must have heard our podcast or something. He sent us an email saying, you know, he, basically given the premise, you know, just to pitch the premise of the film and the people versus George Lucas. And I'm sure Scott and I, I, I we talked about it and told him no. <laughs> I told him... Uh, I remember saying something like, I don't know if I like the premise of your movie and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, and you know, he was like, well, I'm, I'm assuring you it's pro George Lucas and blah, blah, blah. It's not just going to be fan whining. And I said, I know that you say that, (laughs) but I don't know if it, if it ends up not being successful, it's going to come off as being like that. And, well, and that uh, he can't control what anybody else on there says. I mean, there's not a script whenever you have like a sort of an interview type of documentary. That's people true, are going to say what they want to say, right? But he controls what ends up not getting cut and what ends up on screen. A- and as somebody who's made documentaries and been involved in documentaries and doing stuff like that, I also know that a lot of times what you say and the the meaning of what you say may not end up on screen you might end up on there talking but it might get chopped up in a way that you don't like so i think we both we both were just like eh, no thanks and chalked it up to uh, this guy will never make the movie anyway mm-hmm. and uh yeah well here we are <laughs> there it is but i'm sort of glad we weren't on it it was it, it it wasn't a bad movie and he did try to be fair about it but it it and but it it shows the ugly side of of what you face when you do that but i don't know i've got thick skin so i don't you know i kind of always expect <laughs> i've generally been artistically criticized for for my taste ever since i was a little kid so i'm used to it so it doesn't bother me but I, yeah i don't think george lucas is 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 up for it and you know and the, the prequels the, the you know I mean the reason it's it, partially it's all in front of a green screen to push the technology forward but partially all that's because George Lucas hates the nightmare of filming out in the desert or out in the snow where you know he's had some those he's had some bad experiences experiences with that you know horrible uncomfortable experiences he's not as young as he used to be you know, he's he's not. I just saw a video of uh, uh, Alejandro Yordowski, um, who's 86 years old. He just had wrapped the final day of his new movie, which he's been crowdfunding. He's 86 years old. You know, he he's in his hotel room at the end of a you know probably a 20-hour day. He's like, my feet hurt. Blah blah blah. And then and then he starts talking about the passion of filmmaking and art and how nobody makes films that are art anymore and it's all a big pitch to get the crowdfunding money so he can edit it you know at the end he's like and now we have to edit it and to put the sound in and blah 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 and uh that's that's a real filmmaker (laughs) 
George Lucas is a producer. George Lucas isn't going to be like, I don't care that it's 150 degrees out here. We're going to fucking get this done. And, you know, I might end up in the hospital with sunstroke, but we got to get this shot in, you know. He's not that guy. And the, that's that's ultimately successful filmmakers are that guy. They're, they're almost evil in their willingness to do whatever it has to do to make a movie. The ones who make, you know... George, George is trying to skate that line between commercial and, and artistic, and I'll still argue any any day of the week that the prequels are like the mo- like the ultimate in indie movies because no, I've... he made them himself those are those are indie movies he made them and sold them to to the movie the movie companies he 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 had his George Lucas money and he put those together those those are those are every bit as indie as clerks <laughs> basically yeah. Yeah, I comp- actually, and you know what? I mean, maybe more so because he, at least at one point, he owned the prequels. Miramax owns Clerks, so mm-hmm. um, I don't know. But did you listen to my uh, my episode one episode? I don't think that I did. Well, uh, if you're interested, it's episode ninety nine because ninety nine. I, yeah, I am interested. Uh, Phantom Menace came out in. 1999 so I don't know anyway I was kind of stealing an idea from Tom Panarese there but the idea was originally I was going to talk about all three of the prequels and then I realized well I can't do a four hour show so I decided well it was originally going to be one big podcast but then I decided I, I can't do it so but that is actually true in my case and so uh, but yeah you may you may actually uh, get off on that I don't know I mean I basically the point I don't know. Well, fuck it. I'll go ahead and and just kind of distill my point because, you know, I'm not going to repeat everything I said. But, like, I guess, like, the takeaway was that you can't say that The Phantom Menace is an amazing film and you can't say that it's shit on a stick either. I mean, it's it's got shades of gray to it. It it doesn't really... It's got all sorts of things going on in that hot mess, basically. But it's a hot mess. It's pretty hot. It's, uh... I can still watch it uh, all, all the way through without... Like, couple points where it's like, yeah, you move it along. But, it, uh, you know, I watched it twice when it came out on opening night. We watched it at, we, we saw the midnight first screening, and then we drove all the way across town to the loud theater to see it on the big loud screen at, at like 2.33 in the morning. Jeez, that's and, a commitment uh, right there. <laughs> and then I went home, went to bed, and got up and went to see it with another group of friends on a matinee. So, you know, I, I mean, I was in full, like, there, there was train crash going on, but there was also really interesting stuff. And then there was, there's a lot going on story-wise. It's clumsy and poorly written, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of neat stuff going on. He's, he's, he was thinking about it, you know, it's, it's clumsy, but it's kind of, the structure is so unusual in any movie it had a really interesting structure and and when it gets humming you know when it when it when you have the full like even the goofiness of the Padres scene it's it's musical you know the 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 rhythms of the sound effects and the and the editing were you know up there with like Fury Road you know as as far as as far as that goes so there there's stuff to to grip onto in there and and 
it was I, I wasn't even that annoyed by Jar Jar to tell you the truth I was annoyed <laughs> I remember actually the day the opening day that was when they dropped the first scene of Jar Jar on TV and it was the first scene I saw from the movie you know besides the trailer mm-hmm. and I was just like wait Roger Rabbit's in there they didn't say Roger Rabbit was gonna be in there <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, Jar Jar could have been more. And when, and when you see the other Gungans, they're all—they're not like blah, 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 blah. They're all, you know, they all have actual human voices with just like a little accent, you know, a little Caribbean accent on it. That's it, you know. Mm. So, so which makes Jar Jar even more, you know. And and they sort of play the like, yeah, he's even annoying to the Gungans. Mm. But. They could have made him, you know, if they would have changed his voice and made him more of like a hangdog character where he was just like, yeah, I have really bad luck and yeah, you know, kind of like a C-3PO, you know, kind of like the, the, the Eeyore of the, the, the oh, it's just like, oh, we're going to die now, you know, that, that sort of character. He might have not been as, been as a bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah. mm. <sighs> well... Uh, do you need to get a drink or run to the bathroom or anything before we get started? Nope, I'm all, uh, I'm all ready to go. All right. It's funny, your two stories were my two backup stories. Oh, wow. Down on the, on the bottom. Oh, hang on, hang on. Am I? Okay, never mind. I, I had to check if I, I wanted to make sure I was recording. Okay, oh, okay, good. Ah, no, not, no problem. All right, then. So, let's see. So, three, two, one... Attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is, this episode is basically, I guess, the beginning of the final lapse of a series that really I've been doing since the beginning of my show. Basically, I follow, I think, a fairly simple format when you think about it. I do eight episodes, eight episodes sort of clusters. I spend six episodes talking about pretty much anything I want. I have an eighth episode where I talk about Smallville, and that's been a ton of fun. But the seventh episode, because of the fact that I love nonfiction comics so much, I spend my seventh episode talking about 
the DC Paradox Press line of big books. And I call this series... The Big Book Report. Now, when I do this series, I'm not alone. Nope. I always have a certain co-host with me, and so it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to the show the co-host of Two True Freaks and former Tombstone slash Battle at the OK Corral reenactor, Mr. Chris Honeywell. How are you, sir? Howdy. <laughs> I was just reenact I was just reenacting this morning. Yeah, and is that how you hurt your toe or or, or, or what? What was going on? My toe on? and my knee. <laughs> took a bullet to the knee. Took took, took a, a, a yep, some buckshot. But that's part of it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm currently the only OK Corral reenactor right now, but I am looking for some some other people. I'm looking for a Doc Holiday. I'm looking for everybody, even even just townspeople who stand around and get shot. So, <laughs> well, hey, you know, welcome back, dude. I gotta tell you, it's been a while since we talked, but I always have a real blast when we do these shows. And I gotta tell you, you know, we've got not very many more big books to work through, and then that's gonna be it for the big books. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, fine. I've got some ideas of stuff that we could do among, you know, I mean, uh, along the edges of these big books, we always end up going into other conversations. And there's there's often like a lot of connective tissue between those those conversations. So I think, you know, that would be the direction. This is so vague. <laughs> it would be the direction we would we would go into, you know. I mean, We've, you know, we've done like the big book of hoaxes. Mm -hmm. Well, anybody, all anybody has to do is open up their Facebook page any day and look on their timeline to to dig up a couple new hoaxes or, or you know, weird, ridiculous stories that people are buying that are going around and stuff. So you know, basically, I think you know we'll be drawing from the the if anybody remembers the Weekly World News, that sort of edge of <laughs> of society. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I think now's probably about as good a time as any maybe to go into that because we may forget to do it at the end of the episode. Sure. But yeah, <laughs> um, today what we're going to be talking about, and for those of you who don't remember, it's going to be the big book of the Weird Wild West. And ages ago, you and I uh, agreed upon the fact that the last of the big book report has got to be the big book of freaks, which pretty much means that the the episode that we do after this is going to be the big book of bad. And I'm totally okay with that. Now, that's actually going to get preempted because of um, the March 29th release date that the big book of bad was supposed to come out on. I've actually got that slotted for something else. So, and fuck it, since we're in the middle of that right now at the time that this episode is released, I'm obviously doing my Batman v Superman sort of build up right now. Ah, and, right. and my uh, episode 141, at least right now, is scheduled for release on March the 29th, and that's going to be where John M. Wilson and I get together and we talk about our thoughts concerning Batman v Superman. And that technically is supposed to be when the next big book episode is going to be released, but... I wanted the Batman v Superman discussion to be timely, and this is yeah, the way be, to make that work. Yeah. So 
Well, uh, depending on how the movie is, the Big Book of Bad might be uh, timely too. <laughs> well, that's true too. Yeah, and God knows there's going to be other movies coming out at that same time that it, you know that it could relate to. But right. the Big Book of Bad currently is set for episode number one forty nine, uh, uh, released on May the twenty fourth, and so there's going to be that. And kind of by default, that's that's kind of that that's how it has to be because, like I say, the Big Book of Freaks we agreed is going to be the last one. So that means the big book of bad has got to be, you know, the one that we do next. An ultimate. So, yeah. And so then after that, obviously comes the big book of freaks. We're going to be uh, releasing that one again, assuming everything goes according to schedule and who the hell knows on July the 19th. And then we're going to do kind of like a leftovers type type of a thing where basically we, we check out all of the different, big books that we've already talked about and then pick out two stories so that we can have basically we can each for one last time come back for two stories to talk about you know things that maybe we would have talked about before but it just mm -hmm. time just got away from us so there or there are other things that we need to do address or just what have you and then i don't want to get specific as to what our plans are but like you were saying we are going to talk about i guess topics and Honestly, looking at what we've got planned so far, I think that this is actually very fertile territory for some neat podcast episodes because of the fact that it doesn't it doesn't really relate to a specific comic book or a specific movie or whatever. Right. It can be a bunch of different things. I don't want to go so far as to call it a wild card episode, but it's kind of a wild card episode. It can be a lot of different things. So I don't know. I'm kind of looking forward to that as we go into a little bit more different territory here. And I'm also kind of sad to see the big book report end just because, you know, I didn't really I think you and I traded Facebook messages a couple of times, you know, before I started my podcast. But I don't really think that, you know, you and I really knew each other all that well before then. And, you know, having recorded all these shows with you now, it's I don't know. I mean, I, I'm going to kind of miss this. This has been a lot of fun. I was thinking about this the other day and and um like, you know, when you're doing podcasts about comics and stuff, you, you read the comic and you take some notes and stuff. But as far as like, you know, and we're doing and, and like, you know, people do a run of comics or something in a show or they'll do a couple of comics. But usually it's like you're doing a comic and and as, as a segment and stuff. And, and that's what we're doing. But these comics are 191 pages to 200 pages long each time. Mm -hmm. And when you start adding up the, the just the number of, you know, pages, the number of comic pages per minute, we might be one of the highest podcasts as far as that goes, you know, as is, <laughs> is, is number of comic book pages read to to do each episode. Now, I, I will say there's been a couple of the big books that I might have skimmed through a couple of the stories. In them. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I get suckered into them and i and i read the whole thing it's for them for the they're very you know they're they're long but they're made up of sound bites so it's 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 pretty fast cruising through them but still i think i think we're one of the highest page per minute podcasts out there yeah and i would say that the in terms of i guess like the more the for large, your money folks well yeah exactly that you know in in terms of diversity of material i mean we've got to be in the upper strata of the yeah. uh, of the two true freaks podcast network i mean i don't know of any other show that's as dynamic as 
just the big book report is, you know, like the shit that you and I can bring up in, in, in any given episode. I mean, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here. Nah. I'll, I'll give you an example nah. of what I'm of what I'm talking about here. Um, there is this guy that I went to high school with and he was kind of a that guy, you know, everybody knows a that guy. And that's kind of who he was a little bit of let's face it. I mean, high school is not exactly the most receptive environment for right um for anything that's outside the absolute norm yeah and i mean that we and that there's a very narrow definition of what the absolute norm consists of let's not bullshit yeah and especially since we're talking about relatively small town texas here basically that's sports and anything that's too far outside of that wheelhouse you're going to be regarded as a little bit of a mutant. And so you had this, this, that guy who was, uh, and I mean specifically a film buff. I mean, yeah, I think he likes sort of geek topics in general, but film really is his first love. Whereas with me, comics, I mean, I like film, I enjoy it, but really comics is kind of the end all be all for me, you know? And so, but I got bored to kind of bring it all back. I got a little bit bored earlier today. So I started checking out different people that I went to high school with, and I thought, hey, I haven't heard from this guy. And I'm just going to call him Jim. His name is not Jim, but that's just <laughs> fucking what I, I – because I don't want you guys to track him down and let him know that I'm about to talk shit about him. But uh, basically went to Jim's Facebook and come to find out he has one. And hey, look at this. He, got a, he, he has his own film podcast. I'm going to take a look at this. And I listened to one of his episodes, and I'm not going to tell you what – film it is because i don't want to make it easy for anybody to find his his podcast but look (laughs) yeah i mean look i know from bad podcasts okay i've heard some really fucking bad podcasts there was this one guy i i'm not gonna say this i'm not gonna name this person either but it was somebody who who does a hockey podcast and this this was the most incompetent podcast that i have ever heard there's this other guy who did a podcast about catholicism again it was it was like pulling teeth those guys all look like fucking mozart compared to (laughs) jim's movie podcast i mean this was the most this was the most maxwell smart just fucking incompetent podcast that i've ever heard in my entire life i mean that i like the idea of making jim's movie podcast is like the generic term for just like terrible podcasts uh, hey by all means you can have it and so <laughs> you know i compare my output just in let fuck it let's just make this easy right one of my early episodes when i think honestly i don't know that i was as entertaining to listen to then as i hopefully am now but if you if you just listen to the big book of urban legends you and I, that was the first big book report that we did, and you and I covered a fair amount of shit just in that one that one episode. Now, the subject matter kind of lends itself to that because you're yeah. talking about urban legends and then, you know, stories of your own that you've heard that are you know to be bullshit, but damned if they didn't have a ring of truth to them. And then, hey, you know what? I saw the same shit in a movie one time, and hey, what happened with that? Yep. You know, and you can have a lot of interesting conversations about that. And I think the movie that this guy was talking about was similarly fertile, shall we say, for conversation. You shouldn't need very much imagination to to fill up at least 30 minutes of, I think, solid content. And somehow, just listening to 15 or 20 minutes or whatever it was of this idiot's 
show. I, oh my god, it was it was fucking tor- torture. It's torture. And so this is all kind of my own way of saying, you know what? People can maybe regard this as a little bit elitist on my part or being snooty or something. I got to tell you though, dude. I mean, I fuck. I believe it. You know, there are some people that I there it. For whatever reason, I don't know if it's just that they're not natively a podcaster. They don't have any delivery. They don't have any style. I don't know. It, but, it, it is. And, you know, sometimes those people develop all that stuff. And it's a rough it, – it, 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 it depends on their tenacity. There's there's some people like that that don't give up, that are kind of – and they, and – I hate to use the word, but when you first see him, you're like, this guy's kind of a loser, you know? He doesn't, he, he does, and they're driven at first by, in the case of a podcast, just wanting to have a podcast. So they like the idea of it, or they like somebody else's podcast, and they go, I want to do that. They don't really know what they want to do with it. They just know they want to do it. Yeah. And they have to start from scratch. I came into this with like I've been on the radio before college radio or whatever, but I, you know, front of a microphone had to edit sound and and went to film school and stuff. So, you know, I came into it with a, a certain amount more confidence and stuff. But, oh, my God, I go back and listen to episode one of Two True Freaks. Mm-hmm. And I want to just like stick hot pokers in my ears and run screaming out into the street. Why? So I think that's a always, good show. You always get it was a good show, but when I listen to it, it's just like I hear our old microphones. I I hear like stuff that I would have edited out. I it uh, just uh, the music in the background was is random almost, you know. So it, there's hmm. there's all sorts of th- I could critique it all day, but it, and it's also you know, stuff that I'm going to hear more than anybody else. Cause it's just so it's like hearing your own voice. Yeah. But, uh, sometimes those guys that aren't, that know nothing, have no skills. If they just keep doing it for year after year, after year, after a while, they start developing their own little thing. And a, a lot of times they'll end up doing good, but it's the ones that, you know, most of the time they'll do it for a little while, get discouraged and then they're, they're done. You know, so but. Well, again, I'm not going to name names, but there was somebody who I think he was on the two true freaks network, at least at one point. And what I'll say is this, I maybe I should have emailed the host and just maybe, I don't know, given him some encouragement or something. But it felt like he wasn't quite there. He was very close. He knew what he wanted. He had an agenda. And mm-hmm. I think, you know what, in, in, in I guess the rubric of two true freaks. He he's done something that I don't know that just anyone can claim and that literally nobody else is talking about this particular subject. Right. I'm not exaggerating. Nobody else was going near it. Right. And basically what he needed to do is just kind of beef up his content. But his concept was original. He had a good voice. He had a kind of a I think a very interesting point of view. All he needed to do was just basically have a little bit more to say and then say it a little bit better. And those are, when you think about it, minor problems to overcome. But right. I seriously don't think he's put out anything new in at least a couple of months. Oh, I like, you know, I'm I'm always uh, – uh, I'm never actually interested in like – I don't care if they're, somebody's on the podcast that they're perfect. 
You know, I'm more into just like the the energy behind it and you know by by doing it over and over again people get better and and better at it and and all that but um yeah i from the life of me have no idea what you're talking about which is actually good but uh yeah and i i just i didn't want to name the guy by name i mean i i i i I'm so wrapped up in the stuff that I do myself that I'm always that I'm always working on, you know, getting stuff. And and there's been plenty of, um, and not as much podcasts, but there were actually a couple of them that that like didn't go anywhere, or we had segments that we had an idea for, but we didn't really we weren't really sure what we were doing, and it would go for a few months and you know, eventually get dropped or we would change it to something that did work or, or whatever. But there's plenty of stuff like that riddled throughout. I mean, listen to a comic monthly Monday before we added Michael Bailey and a format to, you know, the, the, the format that we had a format to it before, but I think like when we took there was a point in comics monthly Monday where Scott and I sat down and we're like, it's working sort of where we get the show, but it's not exciting us. And that's, you can tell in the show that we're like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we were doing this and that. And then we just sort of took it and completely retooled through Michael in and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, based it more on the, the, um, um, energy between the three of us than like, all right, next issue we you know we were covering Swamp Thing comics, which were there was a good like two years, two and a half years where before Swamp Thing got good, <laughs> before right. Alan Moore took over it, yeah. and we were starting right with you know we were you know we we're like nope start right with one, number one and you know we were losing energy by the time we hit Alan Moore, <laughs> you know it was it was a it was a not the greatest decision I think in the in the first place but. Yeah, all the all the the Star Trek monthly Mondays have undergone many changes and will again Star Wars monthly Monday turn into grown up Star Wars, so. You know, right and yeah, there's a there. One of the things I'll say though is that there's something to be said for trial and error, and yeah. honestly, I think a lot of new podcasts these days starting up they kind of have a they sort of have a leg up, on. I guess what you might say the like the podcast pioneers and that they now have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of good, very high quality podcasts. And they can kind of use that as a model. And then on the other extreme, they've got some really shit podcasts and they can use that sort of as a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. And that was that was where I was coming from when I started my show. I got a lot of praise. If I can kind of blow my own horn here, I got a lot of praise coming out of the gate because, you know, people said that I started off very strong and I said, really hand on heart. This is God's honest truth. I mean, I'd spent years listening to comics podcasts. And so I knew what I wanted to hear and I knew what I wanted other podcasters to say. And it's like, nobody was saying the stuff that I felt like they should be saying. And then it occurred to me, well, I'm kind of a walking opinion anyway, so why don't I just start my own show and then I can right. put it. And, and and then then but then you're you're tasked with the tune of or you know with the task of fine tuning that. 
So then, you know, but yeah, when you start out with that, that's the, that's the way to do a strong beginning because you know what you want to do. And then at the end of an episode, when you listen back to it, you can determine whether you did it or not. You know, if you don't know what you wanted to do and you put a, and you make an episode, a lot of times you probably can listen back. To, well, I, I, I know I've done it, you know, where it was sort of an ill um, conceived episode to begin with or whatever. The energy wasn't right. And you're listening to it at the end going, I don't know if this is good or not. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I succeeded in in this or not. Whereas when you do succeed, you know it. Even sometimes, even when you know what you want, you're not sure if you got there, but you're still sort of. Now I'm just getting too, too esoteric. I think. Well, yeah, but sometimes uh, you know, our, sometimes you don't actually have to listen to it, to know. Like there was an episode of the right. there was the Big Book Report conspiracies that you and I did. I didn't really feel like. I mean, I had to do a quality control check, and of course, there's that. But I mean. Like in general, I didn't need to listen to it in order to know that it right. was that it was good. Right. And sometimes you just you get lucky that way. But that, a lot of that also comes after editing a lot of podcasts because, you know, you're 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 recording it, and um, say I'm I'm one of those guys who goes, um, you're sitting there thinking, well gonna have to do something about those you know after a while but when you get a good one where you you get to the end of it you go holy holy shit <laughs> i didn't hear anything i had to cut out in that one and it was i always listen to those ones anyway because those ones always end up being fun to listen to back when you're putting the music in and stuff like that but you know i know i'm not gonna have to stop and cut dead air out or you know, excessive sounds out because it's just, it's just there, you know, you know, when you, when, when you hit that and, you know, repetition, you, you, you just start doing it more automatically as time goes on. Well, anyway, all of this is kind of a long way of saying that I'm, I'm really proud of the big book report. I mean, that seems to be one of the most popular things that I do. Well, I, I, I say most of these episodes at the end of them were just like, yep, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> so. Well, the only one that I – and honestly, this is not our fault. It was really the material that kind of let us down. But there was the big book of Scandal where that I was, was kind – yeah, it was a little bit rough because of the fact that it was almost like there's literally nothing to say. About mm -hmm. some of this stuff because it's been talked to fucking death. I mean, what am I going to say about the O.J. Simpson trial that A, someone hasn't already heard before, and B, isn't going to piss one side or the other off? And so, the and what about any of those scandals in that book hadn't been trumped a thousand times over since the O.J. Simpson trial? You know, the O.J. Simpson trial. Everybody was like, this is the epitome of media circus. Yeah, you know this is this is this is just like the lowest point we're ever gonna hit. Well, guess what? <laughs> yeah. Then the internet came along, and so uh, you know a lot of the stories in that book were just like, oh, how quaint. Even OJ's kind of quaint and cute these days compared to the, you know, I mean, nowadays if if OJ had been if OJ the whole OJ thing had played out now. We'd be listening to cell phone recordings of the murders happening 
and you know reading all their their online you know him cyber stuff it would have been a you know there would have been there would have been dashboard video from OJ's car during the chase and stuff it would have been very different yeah yes it would it would have been so much more in depth right and anyway, this is all just a really long way of saying that I'm I'm going to be kind of sad to see the big book report go. And like I say, I mean, there are two big books that technically we're leaving on the table. But, you know, the big book of Grimm, I just I truly don't give a shit. And then there's the big book of Martyrs, where I think you truly don't give a shit. So those I don't I might I might peer into it, though, because it might be it might be it might be the craziest book of all. You know, it, mm. it depends on how it's presented I won't. I, 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 I'm not going to say who, but a podcaster has actually reached out to me and asked for my blessing uh, for them to talk about it. Oh, and if you want, actually, I'll tell you about it. Off well, I would be all. I would be all for that too. Yeah, and I thought, you know what? This is a podcast. They can actually do a lot more with it than no offense than I think you and I could. Yeah, and it it actually kind of fits in with what their show is all about, and that alone may give away who's you know, who, who it was who contacted me. But anyway, so I'm actually more interested to hear them talk about it than I was ever in any kind of rush to talk about it myself. So I'm that I'm actually okay with, that's fine. So, but, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of glad that that book's going to get included now. So yeah, all we need to do now is find somebody is, is very happy. (laughs) Yeah. We just have to find somebody that we can stick the big book of Grimm to and, uh, Preferably two people. <laughs> <Neither of us laughs> yeah. <have to laughs> yeah. And so, but like I say, that's, I guess, all in the future. For today, in the here and now, Christmas. Wild and, West. Yeah, the big book of the Weird Wild West. And talk about living up to its name. Published in 1998 and written by John Whalen, the big book of the Weird Wild West offers up over 60 stories of the unusual, the bizarre, and the downright creepy stuff that happened on the American frontier. Stories of Western characters like George Maldon, the Prince of the Hangman, homosexuality among macho cowboys, and the various ghosts that haunted the American West. This is another big book which doesn't really have any kind of a host to it. Like I, no. I don't know if you remember, but like the big book of conspiracies... That was hosted by the by a, a character who was sort of modeled on Mr. X from JFK. Do you remember that? Right. He was sort of like Mr. X mixed with like a man in black yeah. that would show up at UFO. That go- Just sort of a ghoulish guy in a black suit and a snappy hat. Yeah. The Big Book of Urban Legends had Sigmund Freud. The Big Book of the Unexplained, that was Charles Fort, so on and so forth. But – that really has not been a consistent element of the big book series. And in fact, I dare say most big books don't have some kind of host. And I mean, I don't really know what to make of that on the one hand, you know, so there it is anyway. But on the other hand, do you think that the big book of the weird wild West might've benefited from having, I don't know, like Gene Autry or something like that as Uh, as, Gabby Hayes, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the old prospector would have been great, you know, know, with the with the beard and, you know, I guess um, I think maybe it might have been the added work of that where they would have to 
you know, get the character design and get it to all the artists. And, you know, this, this is coming from a world where it's like probably the, you know, these guys got commissioned to do this, but it's like, you gotta put it all together. A lot of it was probably seat of your pants. It was probably just a lot easier to do it without, without a host. Although, you know, um, they serialized a lot of this in the hundred percent true magazine. So having a host on it would have made them a little more, a little more random. Yeah. 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 They're, they're kind of self-contained as they are now. And, and this one does what a lot of the wild West ones do though. Instead of a narrator, you have these self-contained stories, but the stories start bleeding into each other a little bit because you'll get characters that pop up. I mean, the Earps, you know, yes, the whole the whole Tombstone gang <clears throat> and Judge Roy Bean all make multiple appearances. Yes, they do. Wild, Wild Bill Hickok and and you know, I I was very surprised that Annie Oakley didn't get her own story. You know, I was too. There. And you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention was. You know, the last the last show that we did, this was uh, the big book of thugs, and that was mostly 19th century uh, criminals. And on top of that, it was mostly, I guess, the settled part of America, you know, the less wild, well, the less frontier, shall we say, part of America. And I remember telling you, you know, at the time that that was a little bit outside of my uh, wheelhouse. I mean, I knew a little bit from independent study or anything, but that was just not shit that they taught us a whole lot about when I was in school. And the reason for that, like I said, was because Texas history is such a such a huge story when you really think about it, that the faculty, you know, the teachers, they kind of have their hands full just teaching us about the history of this one state to want to work in literally every single thing that was going on in, say, New York or wherever else. I mean, there comes a point when once Texas kind of becomes a thing, they kind of break away from specifically American history. Right. And they kind of focus in specifically on Texas history. And this may be less of a problem if you live in friggin' Wisconsin or something like that, because what the fuck is there to say about Wisconsin? But Texas, there's a... Nary a, a square inch of territory anywhere in Texas that some guy at some point didn't bleed on and then die on, you know? Right, so, right. Um, Where something just completely insane didn't happen several times. Yeah. It it literally almost every inch of Texas, and it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and by the way, that is something – like I truly don't think that people understand how fucking big this state is, but – I was watching an episode of Gilmore Girls, and for those of you who don't know, that show is set in the state of Connecticut, right? And one of the characters said, oh my god, I have to drive all the way to Hartford? That's ten miles away. And I'm like, I drive that far just to go out to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's nothing. I mean, you could drive, just to kind of put it all in perspective, guys, Houston, where I live, is bigger than the entire fucking state of Connecticut. Right, right. You're, you're almost more of a quadrant than you are of a state yeah. <laughs> in the United States. You're not quite a quadrant, but you're, you're, you're 
a segment, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and you can drive two hours in any direction you want. Just pick a direction, drive that way for two hours. You're not out of Houston city limits, guys. Right. All right. <laughs> That's fucked up, but it's true. And so it, there's just this her this whole urban sprawl thing that I, I'm. You know what? All due respect to you listeners who are in the Northeast, I don't think you understand how fucking big this place really is. So anyway, all of this is kind of a long way of saying, though, that these stories were a little bit more in line with what I was taught in school. And so as a result, I think I've got a little bit more to contribute this time. And so because of the fact that you went first last time, I'm going first this time. All right. So first up, at least as far as my stories are concerned, this is... Uh, the late great medicine show from page 122 and the the pitch of it is actually pretty simple i mean basically what you'd have in these sort of frontier towns is you'd have these supposed medicine men basically they're just kind of these quacks and what they do is they'd kind of put on a little bit of a show and they'd have these miracle remedies that can cure everything under the sun and it, by and large, it's really just horse shit. Now, there are instances where this stuff may have actually been harmful to you, but you could, like in modern parlance, we'd call a lot of this stuff a placebo. And that's at least how the medicine, the medicine show started. What the medicine show ultimately kind of evolved into, Chris, I just, just try this on for size. I want to see if you, you agree with this. It started off as being a... You could fairly well say a little bit of a scam. Yeah, it turned it turned into performance art. It always was was performance art. I mean, but it had to keep building and building and building. And I mean, this was also there. There were the medicine shows. You had traveling tent revivals. You know, that were religiously, you know, a, basically a religious medicine show that was all, you know, pomp and circumstance. And you had um, lecturers who were doing the same, you know, going around um, sometimes, you know, political or, you know, anti-immigrant lectures or pro-immigrant lectures. Basically the Internet, you know, yeah. touring around. There, I mean, there was a rabid – you're Catholic. You've probably heard of the, you know, the anti-Catholic movement at that time. There were, there were lectures going from town to town, you know, getting the townspeople together and going, you know, what's going on in that Catholic church is the nuns and priests are communing with Satan and blah, blah, blah. And then they would gather up some money, you know, sell their, their pamphlet that they were selling on it and off to the next town and – and I am Professor blah, blah blah blah, and who knows who they were? You know, they were some, they were some hairy mud, traveling around. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's kind of funny. I wasn't, I, I kind of thought that there's a character at the top of page one twenty three, kind of sort of reminded me of, uh, I forget the actor's name, but Harry Mud. Yeah. And, um, in fact, actually, since we're on the subject. At the very bottom, or actually at the very top of page 122, and then in the next to last panel at the bottom of page 124, there's this character who kind of looks like Powers Booth from Tombstone. He played um, Cur Curly Bill. Okay. And it, it's, it's 
a little too close, I think, to... Well, no, this came out in 1998, so this actually may have been somewhat influenced by Powers Booth. I don't know. But, you oh, know, you, I mean, that's sort of also... I mean, that was also the uh, the style of the times. You know, this is a person in a stereotypical, you know, the mustache, the waxed mustache and snappy suit, snappy hat. Yeah. Grease back hair. Uh, and this is... Yeah. Basically, this whole idea of mythologizing the Wild West and uh, glamorizing it in a way, believe it or not, hadn't really been done up to this time. And we're talking about post-Civil War now. Mm -hmm. Hadn't really been done up to that point. But this whole idea, I guess, of the myth of, of, of the Old West, this and is where that kind of took root. And the general state of nobody really knew you know, you could say, oh, I got this secret recipe from an Indian chief, you know, and it and the Indians were mysterious enough that people would go like, whoa, that sounds plausible. You know, I hear those Indians have lots of natural cures or whatever. And uh, you I mean, basically the whole story of uh, of all the, you know, Wild West heroes that we know about today were how they lived their real lives just sort of <laughs> in a regular grimy way and then somebody would get a hold of them and write their story and that would become the the legend. Well, and that's pretty much how I guess the legend of Wyatt Earp ever uh, ever got any yeah. traction. I mean, that's where it started. And basically somebody wrote or he either he wrote it himself or somebody else wrote it for him. But it was basically a dime store novel. And up to then, I mean, I think Wyatt Earp was moderately famous, like the same way that Sheriff Arpaio is. He's kind of famous today or yeah. infamous in a way. Well, remember the Walking Tall movies from the 70s? There were the, the series of Walking Tall movies about a sheriff, you know, in the in the South named Buford Pusser, who mm -hmm. who took charge of his town with a baseball bat, you know, and uh and and made to and it was a you know years later it was like well you know the movie was ridiculous I did use the baseball bat once and it became part you know but in the movie the guy was wheel you know running around with a baseball bat time to to regulate and and that became his story you know yeah no matter how much he, if on his deathbed he's like it was all fake it doesn't matter that's his story from you know Buffalo Bill all all, all those guys you know. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, you could do that back then just because of the the ability to fact check certain things didn't really exist. And so because of that, hell, I would say it was probably pretty easy to get away with murder, depending <laughs> on how you did yeah. it, because all you had to do is just go to the next town and give them a different name when you moved there. No one. Sure. Knew. Sure. Oh, you know, and um, um, I felt really comfortable with this material because as a kid, my father was an antique collector and tra trader dealer scrounger or whatever and he would get i remember he got his hands on this box full of the old magazines that they would serialize these stories in you know from from the the actual you know uh, i'm trying to remember the name of um the guy who got the 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 gun named after him the bunt line the Buntline, Ned Buntline. You know, there were net. You know, the, these were the books that the magazines that you know the Ned Buntline serialized stories would would be in, and I can't imagine how much those things are worth, you know, now. But uh, I would sit down and read them as a kid, and they were lurid, 
horribly, even as a kid, you know, that it was like almost as if an illiterate person was writing. But it was, yeah, it was the only thing. And how, how would you fact check in those days? The only way you'd fact check is to get on a horse and and ride for months and find people and ask them and hopefully get the true story. You know, it was every everything could be made up. I mean, uh, the, this book is riddled with people going from town to town. Sometimes they're a bartender. Sometimes they end up being sheriff, you know. Yeah. Oh, we need a sheriff. You're sheriff now. And this guy is like a serial killer psychopath and. And that uh, was known to happen. That's totally yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Every everybody, you could you could just you could just go to the next, to go over the next mountain range and reinvent yourself completely. And uh, well, and like one of the things that was really interesting to me when I when I was reading this was, I guess it's something that I've just kind of taken for granted, but when you think about it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And that's dentistry, and that was another part of these of these medicine shows that would come yes. along. Where, oh, you know, when you think about it, the amount of things that could possibly go wrong with your teeth in life, the list is pretty fucking long. And and in some, the old west, before people knew that brushing your teeth was a good idea and stuff like that. Yeah, or for that matter, how, you know, even if they did know, well, where are you going to get a toothbrush, man? I mean, the, you know, right. you're, out, you're out there in the middle of fucking nowhere, and uh, something tells me you can't go to the local Quickie Mart and pick up some toothpaste, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, now, guys, I'm not, I'm not saying this to, you know, build up any kind of sympathy or anything like that. I'm just saying this because this is an experience I had to, to illustrate a point. I want to say it was like 2007 or 2008, something like that. I broke a tooth. I was just sitting at my desk, and at the time I worked from home, and I I broke a tooth. And now I'd broken teeth before, so by itself, you know, I didn't really feel like it was that big a deal. But I I guess I, I exposed a nerve or something, and so breaking this tooth, um, guys, I haven't felt pain like that. It's some of the worst pain ever. Yeah, and I mean I it. It's hurt bad. I almost passed out at my desk. And the only thing, this is going to sound crazy, but the only thing I I found that could alleviate that, it was like the just frigid, almost frozen, ice cold water and swishing that around in my mouth. And it's like, I guess that would numb the nerve or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But that was the only thing I, I, I found that could alleviate the pain. I managed to get an, a, a, an emergency... Uh, appointment set up. They were able to do a root canal and they got, they got me fixed up. But this is a time when the idea of anesthesiology and <laughs> all of that other stuff, you know, it would uh, hit you over the head <laughs> to yeah. knock you out sometimes. And the, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or, uh, God help you, you know, maybe the only way you can get through that type of a procedure is if you just get really fucking drunk. But then there was, there was that they had opiates too. Yeah, well, who wants to mess with that stuff, though? Jeez, I, you talk about risky. But, you know, if then, of course... If that... off your arm, you want to mess with opiates at that point. Okay, yeah, give me the opiates. Yeah, sure, but the but the idea of getting drunk in order to... That may help you with the pain, but as you probably know, that thins out your blood, and you're, this is going to be a bloody procedure, so I don't know if you're... Dentist, and your dentist might be getting drunk, too. Yeah. <laughs> Days. Yeah, who the hell knows? I mean, yeah, there, there really wasn't a uh, 
uh, like an FDA or anything like that. Or wait, not FDA. Who is it that that does oversight over doctors and dentists? Oh, AMA, maybe. AMA, yeah. And yeah, there was no AMA back in those days. No. So, you know, you're pretty much you're at this guy's mercy. And trust me, guys, he did not go to dentistry school. And I guess I get my point here is that all throughout the history of man up to what like what would you say like the 1940s or 50s or something we had no real dentistry to speak of the pain people must have been in throughout history i mean people look back at at uh uh emperor nero from the roman empire and they look at him and they today and what they say is oh well that guy must have been crazy you know what i think he may have had a toothache Exactly. Exactly. It could have been a, a lot of things. Yeah. And but, so it's I don't know. Just a, it's a weird but thing. Then again, in the I mean, in the old days, they would also they would just knock your tooth out. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could get it taken care of. It would be a horrible thing. But if you had that, I mean, as as you know, that constant I had I had the same problem with my wisdom teeth that they went bad and I had four of them broken at once shit and i was just rolled up in a fetal position you know waiting for my dental appointment i found myself in the bathroom looking in the mirror with a hammer <laughs> in my hand thinking maybe i could knock these out or pry these out you know it was that much pain so i think in those days you know it will motivate you it's like okay somebody's gonna j tear at my mouth now but they'll, they'll they'll pull this tooth out and then if you didn't die from if you didn't in get your gums infected you know the socket infected then you'd be okay but i i mean uh, that was pretty much dentistry in those days i mean now when i had those four wisdom teeth got gone bad once i was in the dentist chair um the pain was done you know there was a slight moment of pain when you get a shot of novocaine and then it's all just you know i mean compared to the horrors of the past it was a wonderful experience you know what i mean yeah it was not a nightmare well and that's the thing the nightmare was leading up was the pain leading up to getting it fixed and in those days the nightmare was the pain getting it fixed after getting it fixed <laughs> you know it was just it was just horrible i'm sure there were so many toothless people in the old west or people with just mouths full of rotting horrors it, it it must have been terrible. I mean, that was that's the one takeaway <clears throat> um, of the movie. What was it? Castaway with um, with the beach ball and uh, Tom Hanks. Oh yeah, that was my one takeaway. Is if I was ever on a desert island, I want um, dental floss. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing I want to want to have a, a stockpile of. I can. I can swim around and get some fish and build some some shelter, but uh, yeah, I definitely do not want to be getting a cavity while I'm out in that desert island. No question. And if I was, if that would be part of my Walking Dead um, zombie apocalypse, you know, backpack would be like ten packs of of dental floss, because I'll be eating lots of rats and they're stringy. Yeah, but yeah, very definitely rangy. So. I don't know. And that I don't really have too much else on that. It's just it's it's just one of those just incredibly really fucked up things that I never really thought all that much about until I read the story. And I thought, you know what, that must have been just a 
literally a bloody fucking mess. So hey, stuff like that was going on into the eighties. Um, I have a fr- I have a really good friend who who ended up having a lot of like useless and detrimental dental work done to him by a group of you know a, a group of dentists came in they set up shop in the town and you know offered this really affordable dental work and w- would be like oh you need this and this and this did all this work on all these people and then packed up and disappeared damn We're gone yep into the 80s shit yeah in the 80s like it must it was probably like around like the late 70s early like 81 82 around that time period you know when he was a kid and yeah so, so you know stuff like that was going on right i mean there's still variations of it going on today but you don't have the as i mean the the i it the 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 guys that tour town to town are not now at two thirty in the morning selling Doctor Ho's electrotherapy implants, you know, and stuff like that. Doctor Ho is actually an authentic. Look up Doctor Ho on <laughs> infomercials on YouTube. You'll be pleasantly uh, surprised. They're fun. Well, and that was the main thing that I had for um, uh, for this uh, for this story. Now the um. I guess the uh, for for my other story, this is going to be on page one fifty, Cowboys versus the Flying Saucers, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is because number one, I just thought it was kind of interesting, but number two, it seems like it kind of relates to the Big Book of Conspiracies and everything that you and I were yeah. talking about related to UFOs, and I guess to kind of tie it all back to things that you and I said in that episode. I mean, there's this perception and I don't completely know where it comes from, but there's this perception that UFOs are kind of a 20th century sort of thing. And it's, it's just not true. Well, this one actually claims that someone coined the, called them a saucer before the, the guy in Washington who's, um, you know, in the, in the forties. So, yeah, here in Texas, a guy in Texas, yeah, described the object as a saucer. I never had heard that before. I'd heard it. I'm, I don't know if I believe it. I, it's ne- it's one of those things I've never really bothered to check into, but I've kind of wondered about that myself. But I guess the, the my degree of fascination in this comes from the fact that guys, in case it wasn't obvious, we're talking about the 19th century. This is the frontier of America. The idea of airborne travel of airplanes and helicopters and stuff. I mean, guys, we're a good, like, what would you say? Like 20 or so years from that. It was literally science fiction in those days. It was stuff. I mean, it was being written about by Jules Verne. Yeah. And so I think people had, they had an imagination for it. Kind of like, I, I guess kind of give an analogy. We have a conception of, of colonizing Mars but we don't really have the technological sophistication or for that matter a way of really getting there and outfitting a place like that you know we we can envision such a thing but we can we can envision it and we could probably do it to a, like a limited stu- you know some people living in capsules and maybe a tiny little biodome or something like that right but and- not like colonizing mars 
Yeah, and I would almost say it's you know what we're capable of right now is basically glorified space camping. Yes, but not but yes. like colonizing it. Yeah, I don't think so. We're yeah. not there yet, and so we we can envision that, and we can I think intellectually relate to it, but we understand that this is fiction, you know. And same thing is true for any kind of air travel in say the 1870s, you know. Yeah, People, outside of a balloon. Yeah, and people could envision such a thing, but the idea of like sophisticated airships of any kind is – on the one hand, it's technologically foreign to them, but it's not psychologically foreign. They can envision it. They just did not have the technology for it, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of have to believe these stories that you know, when people say that there was this giant metal – Fucker that was just flying around in the air somehow and it swooped down on on the cavalry and all kinds of shit ensued, you know, and I don't know if I trust some beer swilling trailer dwelling just fucking redneck who tells that story today. But you trust a beer swilling <laughs> cowboy from back cowboy. then. You know what? I I think I do, you know, especially and, reading about the what what they made their swill out of. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> and there is that. But the other thing is that as this story progresses, it gets weirder and weirder. But one of the things that you cannot escape is the similarity that these stories have to modern day alien abduction stories. So, yeah. Yeah, they and, get hypnotized and floated into it's it's funny. It sort of splits. Some of them are classic, like they're modern saucer stories. They sound like a modern UFO sighting. Mm -hmm. And the other ones have that thing of like where people um, project what the what you know the zeitgeist of the times is, which was the Jules Verne master of the world flying ship. So so half these stories are about like this jewel, uh, and of course that's the way the artist is is depicting it but there was that, that i mean that that was also the description of them i remember reading about these stories as as a kid you know they were basically like big metal blimps they would look like and they would have propellers on them and stuff like that and half the stories are like that but half the stories are just sort of like classic el elo ufo stories yeah elo something else yeah <laughs> yeah elo had their their own ufo but um you know, with discs and grays and cattle mutilations. Yeah, I was going to mention you know, that. Yeah, that's in there, too. Like that. the, so it's it's just this weird it's, – it's just weird to see that this was going on then just as much as it, it was going on now, you know. And the same sort of stories like, oh, the, the, the guy who was put on the airship was a drunk, you know. Although a lot a lot of the stories that some of the guys tell, like the people who pull them on the airship are like, I'm going first. I'm going to defeat the army of Malta, and then I will fly to Mars. You know, there's there's a couple stories like that. <laughs> yeah, and or Borneo maybe was it Borneo? He was going to go defeat some army, and then Cuba, then, Cuba. That's it. Yeah, and this whole thing is there's. When I say plausibility, I mean I base that on the similarity this has to, like I say, the modern-day UFO, the generic sort of story to it, mm -hmm. you know, and it, up to and including, like you were saying, the cattle mutilation. And 
but the other thing was, you know, these sort of weird misshapen beings that were hypnotizing people and piloting these bizarre craft and the whole thing. It, it's, it's just it's so fucked up. It's, it's, I hate to say it this way, but it's one of those things. It's just weird enough to be true, you know? And anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If it was made up, it was made up very poorly because it doesn't mesh right. It, 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 it makes more sense as something that was true. That's true that we are missing a lot of information. <laughs> for. Yes. So you have no, if it, it, it has the whole UFO thing has always has had the feel to me that if there were two or three key points of information discovered, then you could sort of piece together what was going on. But without them, it's a complete clusterfuck of, of, I, you know, concepts of what could possibly be going on from, you know, the, collective unconscious to actual aliens to government mind control to a synthesis of all of that all of the above who knows right and the one of the more popular conspiracy theories that i've heard floated around at least for 20th century ufos was that you basically had the nazis and it's I think pretty well established that as far as technology is concerned, they were a good 15, maybe 20 years ahead of everybody else. And, you know, the things that they were able to do. And one of the things that they managed was in effect, flying saucers, some sort of propulsion device. That's something other than internal combustion. Right. And they developed it. They pioneered it. Maybe didn't, necessarily perfect it but they at least they they got the they got the concept at least as far enough along as prototype right and you know as to what the ultimate end game of that might have ultimately been who the hell knows but my point is that that's a, a conspiracy theory that i've seen around i'm not saying i believe it i'm not saying i don't believe it but i've seen it around and then of course you had operation paperclip where the United States like stole something like 300,000 or some odd patents from Germany after the fall of Berlin. And that's and a lot of scientists. <laughs> yeah. In order to make the shit work. And that's ultimately how we got to the moon. Not, you know, A to B, but that was that's where we got, I guess, the fund like the core fundamentals of the technology that sent us to the moon. And so th there's a degree to which, you know, I find that theory because to me it's it's all sci-fi to begin with anyway. So keep that in mind when I say that there's a degree to which I find that to be a kind of valid and lucid type of theory. It's it, it basically it tries to close all of the different loopholes and stuff. But right, the problem with it is when you start digging back in history a little bit and you find that you know what this these sorts of phenomena predate you know the rise of the nazis and everything i mean even if you want to attribute everything that we saw in the 20th century most of which started right around about the time of the nazis okay fine i'll grant you that argument fine you know they were the ones that that did that stuff how do you explain all this stuff that came before you know, and problem with the stuff i mean i i think we think about the more modern stuff because that's just when 
modern when worldwide communication began you know you know the 40s i mean even before the 40s it was starting but by the 40s there was you know you could fly all over the world you know and you could you could transfer by radio information and stuff like that so so stuff got information got transferred and stories got transferred so far in the west the problem with the west is by the time someone saw something like a ufo and by the time the story would get to say a newspaper man probably been through five hands you know exaggerated yeah it's like a game on telephone counted yeah everything was that way you know i mean basically you could send a reporter out to somewhere and have him write a story you know if the story wasn't good enough he could just write his own story and nobody would ever be able to prove it otherwise or have the wherewithal to do it so you know and and the same goes i mean when you and then as you go further back when you start going into ancient astronaut land and you know ancient um accounts of this you have even you have despite even even in addition to the length of time that these stories have had to like mostly be orally passed on or orally then written down then lost and orally writ- passed on from that written down that and you know translated so when they're talking about one thing you're not sure what they mean by a disc or it was like a th- this or this it could have meant something different in that time you're you're just completely stymied of ever finding out what really goes on short of a time machine so yeah let's talk so about think that of the stuff that we have more information on i guess how likely is it or let me rephrase that because we're talking about likelihood when it comes to this but i guess how how plausible i guess is it that you know what i've seen conspiracy theories that say that these are aliens from other planets i've seen other conspiracies uh, conspiracy theories that say that uh, these are actually demons, you know, people from hell who have somehow found a way to cross over and in, in, into which, this dimension. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, which sort of merges with the people who are like, they're creatures from another dimension. They're yeah. from, or, you what know, they're though, us from the future. Yeah. And that's actually, that was going to be where I, where I was going to go with it. How possible is it that it's not demons? It's not aliens. It's not ghosts or anything like that. What if these are time travelers? That 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 in a in in a science fiction context makes more sense, you know. And when I say science fiction, I don't mean that as a complete like, um, as as complete fiction. As as if you're trying to think of it in some sort of scientific terms, that explanation would make more sense. But again, you're working backwards from the conclusion of it too. So you know, you can always make it fit, but. Yeah, that, I mean that that seems like a plausible thing that 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 in in the future if you did get a time machine that you would want to go back and check out the past, you know. And um or you know there's the the theory that it's us we've it, we'd evolved to a point where our genetics are all messed up and we look like goofy grays and we need some human you know, we need some old genetics from from the past, you know, there was a whole story of that time traveler who ca- said claims he came to the 
present day to get an old Commodore computer because it had a chip in it they needed to for something specific, you know, mm. or something like that. So that sort of makes more sense in a story-wise. In reality, eh, you know, it could go anywhere at, the, at, 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 at that point because of all the factors that you don't have, you know, the, the, the information that you don't have on it. Well, I've read one piece of paper in a government vault somewhere that makes you go, oh, you know, it's all this antenna that Russia put up in 1950 and forgot about, you know, that's transmitting something that makes people who knows, you know, it could it could be, you know, practically anything you want to make up. But well, there was this uh, physicist who ran a blog and among other things, what what he talked about was. I guess the the theory of time travel, you know, like from mm-hmm. I guess like from a practical standpoint, how would this be done? And he said, first of all, and I, I'm I'm kind of having to rely on him because I'm fucking I'm not a physicist. But what he says is that the laws of physics allow for time travel, number one. But he said, number two. You can only go forward. Well, actually, he said the other way. He said you can only, oh, you go, can only go backwards. Yeah, he said you can only go backwards. And so, you know, now he said that there's an entire theory out there that says that time is circular. And so you might have the appearance of moving forward by going backward, but I, that's unknown. And really, it's unknowable. So what he right, suggested right. was if there have ever been visitors from the future, number one, they come from a time way, way technologically advanced as compared to what we have today. And number two... They have, I guess, for lack of a better word, cloaking technology that would allow them to basically vanish when they need to. Um, And so when it appears that they escape or they just disappear or something like that, they're probably still there. But they're they're, just sitting there. Yeah. Right. Maybe they're invisible or maybe they've phased into a a, different dimensional. Yeah. A different dimensional plane, shall we say. But they're still here. They're just maybe in a in, in a different wavelength of light, and because light is apparently that is its own spatial dimension, and just like gravity is its own spatial dimension, and time is its own spatial dimension, you know, and so they're they're here. It's just they're not perceptible to us because we have, in terms of I guess dimensionality, a very limited sort of view. They right. have technology that expands their their awareness. I guess through some sort of a machine, I don't know, that allows them to see beyond what you and I can see. And so they can see us, in effect, but we cannot see them. And I don't know if I want to call that invisibility as such, but I, maybe that's just the practical outcome of it. But right, right. I've read that, too. And I, I've always kind of thought this, this this entire thing, and that's why I'm being such a pain in the ass about this, if you were curious. But that's <laughs> I've, I've, I've always found this entire thing sort of fascinating and so I just you're one of the few people that I can yeah that I can blabber to about it so here we are I find it fascinating it always comes to the point of where it's like ah you don't have enough information I'd like you know there's lots of ways that I'd like it to be or that I would imagine it to be but you just you you can never you can never tell you know like I've had UFO viewing experiences where I've seen a UFO but I've never had like a contactee experience or anything like that, mm-hmm. which would 
probably changed my perception of it. I mean, every time I've seen a UFO, it's been a very like, you know, I, I don't want to say sober, but like sober minded of like, ah, I'm sitting, well, look at that. That's flying up there. And like, and most time, I think all times I've had other people with me where we've been like, oh, look at that. That's unusual. You know, yeah. I think that's a UFO, you know, that sort of thing. It wasn't a weird, um, you know, all of a sudden we lost two hours time or there was a odd hum in the air or anything like that. It was just like, like looking at a plane up in the air, you know, it wasn't hovering 50 feet above the ground. It was, you know, way up there or whatever. What, what the one we saw was pretty low. That was interesting, but it wasn't like a flight. It was just like an orb type thing. Mm. So it was just like, it was like a glow, like a perfect globe of, white basically so it, none of the drama <laughs> of a lot of ufo you know experiences of note so i'm assuming that's probably the normal or, or what the majority of when people see ufos but um i would think so yeah yeah <laughs> Well, that's basically what I had for this. So I, I almost wonder if the uh, the original concept for Cowboys versus Aliens didn't come from this comic, because it was a it was an indie comic, indie style comic, I think. Well, maybe it was DC. I can't remember. But uh, I thought it when was. When I saw indie. the Cowboys versus Flying Saucers, I was like, huh. I wonder if this was the the origin of mixing the two things together. It is a weird one. I'll give you that. So, um, but I, you know, I, I guess if you buy into the idea that these truly are aliens, makes you wonder that are they impressed or disgusted, perhaps, with I think the technological advancement that we made within a like a century long period? Because if you think about it, America in 1850 didn't look all that different from America of 1750. But America right. of 1950 looks like neither of those. Right, right. So, no, yeah, I mean, 1750 to 1850, it looked the same. It was just moving and growing, you know. Right. And then once it got established, yeah, that's when, that's when, you know, I mean, that's the huge change. That was the industrial era set in, and that's when you could, you could, preform houses and stuff like that you know all of a sudden you could settle in and start really manufacturing stuff yeah well that was pretty much what i had for for you too yeah for mine so uh now what mine aren't as meaty as your i had yours as as secondary um ones in in case we had any um overlap but it turned out they were the overlap. So that, that that was good. Those ones, I, I, I actually, I think we can gain more out of conversation-wise than mine. Mine are almost, um, well, I, I've got one that I just want to mention, and that was the um, Hell on an Empty Stomach story on page 13, mm -hmm. which it just, it, it just tickled me because it reminded me of uh, the Greedo scene in the cantina in Star Wars. I'm flipping over to it right now somebody shooting somebody at the at the dinner table oh yes yeah, yeah took a, took i, I thought about that same thing when i was reading it yeah i was like oh this is basically the this this is almost like the origin of the the greedo story <laughs> yeah and i actually almost i i kind of had to wonder you know is 
was there maybe some inspiration there? <laughs> so, oh, well, I mean, the, the whole, that whole scene was def- definitely, you know, I mean, tattooing was almost like the Western part of Star Wars, you know. Star Wars was almost like a Western in space. Right. It was described as such a lot. So, you know, it was just it, it was just a nice little, I read it and I was just like, ah, Greedo. Not enough, not enough to actually base a segment on, but I just wanted to, I didn't want it to pass by. Um, yeah, the the one is uh, the my first one is on page twenty four. It's uh, the last outlaw. The yes the of uh, Bill Miner. I and, loved uh, this story. This was awesome. And I was really happy to see this story included in here, although he's um, really he's not portrayed in this in the same way that that I that I like Bill Miner, but. I'm I, I'm I was introduced to him through it was a 1980 film called um, The Gray Fox, with uh, uh, just famous beloved character actor Richard Farnsworth. I think it was his first. Um, oh, I thought it was Gaylord Nelson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and he was a uh, he started out in old westerns as a stuntman. And then he would get character roles. He was this really soft-spoken old cowboy-looking guy. And um, the Gray Fox was about him in his in his later years, and I'm sure it was heavily fictionalized. He was, you know, falling in love with a with a widow out on the plane and planning his last train heist. But it's just one of those great realistic westerns. Very, very subtle, you know, it's it's not an action packed, it's a character driven of just somebody who's basically lived past their time and is trying to fit into the, the quote unquote modern world, but you know, he knows nothing but robbing trains. And and it or, you know, or, or no, actually I think he was, you know, started out as a stagecoach robber and was trying to graduate to trains. And by the time he was old, trains were on their way out, too, as, as far as, like, carrying money and stuff. So it was just generally he's not catching any luck. Right. It's a great movie. If anybody uh, uh, gets a chance to see it, I think he got it because I, I believe he was in uh, Honeysuckle Rose with Willie Nelson and 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 got this role. And, and like, re- soon after this, Willie Nelson came out with a Western um, called Barbarossa. Yes, which was about uh, very, they didn't have the story in here, but it was a very similar to a lot of the stories in here where he it was about, you know, an older guy trying to live up to his legend, you know, as as a legendary character and feeling the burn of age. And, and it was another soft spoken character driven movie. And they were both just fantastic. Those were the first two Westerns that I really like loved as a kid. Hmm. Well, uh, wow, you've got a depth of experience with this that obviously eludes me. I, I, my, my knowledge of Bill Miner pretty much begins and ends with this story. With this, with this story? Yeah. And so anything other than that, I don't know. But I, I, I Well, you the- see, I, I, I only, when I was reading the story, I was like, oh, wait, this is a Gray Fox story. 
And then I had to actually go and and Google Gray Fox to make sure that his name was Bill Miner, although I was pretty sure it was. And I was like, yes, it's this is the same story. So I'm only slightly more. I'm my only depth comes from I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I guess the thing about it that plays for me like this story is that. He's, yeah, the guy's a thief and whatnot, but he's kind of the thief with a heart of gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the guy says, you know, don't take my watch. This was, you know, I I, I inherited this from my ma. And so he lets him keep the watch. And I don't know how common codes of honor like that really were among those coach robbers. Or how how real that story is. You know, that could just be part of his, his uh, legendary story of his you know because also a lot of the times a lot of these guys that were robbing whether they were really being robin hoods or not there was a there was a class they built a class thing into it and it was probably a good idea to to be like oh yeah i rob from the rich and give to the poor and hey when the common guy doesn't you know he's worked hard for that watch i'll take the rich man's gold that plays better for you know then you can become kind of a folk hero and uh, when you when you rob someplace, yeah, you might have half the the coach car on your side, you know. Right. It, it would be very very good. But at the same time, he he, there were you know, there are people who are very polite. <laughs> yeah. Well, this story, it's there's something about it that just seems so quintessentially old west. You know this. Because he's he's in and out of uh, prison. He he gets arrested for this or that. He gets sentenced. Then he gets out. Then he gets sent back. Then he gets out. Then he, you know, and you know where does where does it stop? And so in, in his case, it stopped whenever he uh, attempted an escape, got infected by swamp water, and that killed him. It, it, it reminds uh, – a lot of these stories remind me of – you ever seen Papillon or read the book Papillon? It, it all it reminds me a lot of Papillon. You know, just somebody in and out of – you know, their their life is, is sort of in and out of jail. And there's a lot of pe- – I mean there's a, it, that, that's a pattern in human life. But in the old days, eh, it wasn't much of a stigma to it. It was just something like, ah, we got you. <laughs> yeah, you got me. And then you're in, in jail for a little while. And then you got out. Hey, you know, no no harm, no foul. You could be the most horrible murderer, cold-blooded stuff. Ah, you got out. You could still go into a town and you could be the, you could be the local minister or the sheriff or you could just get married and have a respectable life as a farmer if you wanted to, you know? Right. I mean, there's... And that's a, I mean, that's a trope in Western movies is the, the farmer who's like, you know, and the old gang rides up, you know, come on, Bill, we're going out to rob this one last stagecoach and get a billion dollars. Oh, the crops aren't that good this year, but I'm trying to the wife and the baby. Oh, okay, I'll do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> usually ends up being his last hurrah, too. <laughs> usually not a good idea. But in, in, you know, of course, in reality, sometimes it was a good idea. Sometimes it was a bad idea, you know. Well, and trying to rob a train on, you know, from a horse. I mean, I realize there's an entire sort of romance related to that. But when Bill Miner tried to do it, you know, he found out how risky that might be. You know, yeah. he was getting shot at by a very well-protected uh, convoy of I don't even know what the hell they were trying to rob, but 
it was obviously it was it was worth having having a uh, I guess a full accompaniment of armed armed security guards. Yep. Uh, or they might have been going out to shoot buffalo <laughs> from the side of the train. Who knows? And uh, this one, this one sort of segues into my second one, which uh, is not too far away on page thirty-eight. Liver Eaton Johnson. Yes. Now I I just love a the portrayal the drawing of Liver Eaton Johnson. If you put an eye patch on him, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and if my friend was living in this time, and if if, 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 if he's now a a, a nonviolent um, you, you know lives by nonviolence. I'm trying to I'm trying to I think he's a. a a Quaker or a Shaker, I, I can't remember. But back in his back in his days when uh, he was a bouncer, he could have been Liver Eaton Johnson. And what I love about Liver Eaton Johnson, the, and I'm sure it's partially it's like legend story mixed in together though. It's the your standard, you know, kind of Jonah Hex story of the the um, what was it? The Crow Indians come in, kill his wife. Yes. While he's out hunting, comes back, wife and child finds their bodies, finds the 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 crow feather and decides he's just going to take out the crow nation one by one. And then proceeds to do it. I mean, he kills a bunch, kill them, take their scalps and eat their liver. But he does it. It's all portrayed in this just sort of like, hey. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, and this really rugged mountain man looking guy. I mean, this he's kind of the gold standard of not to be fucked with, you know? Right, right. But it's 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 he's not especially like hateful about it. It's he's but he's also he's a terminator basically. Yeah. <laughs> he just stays on the edges, kills off the the Indians and be, and, and in so doing becomes a, a legend amongst the crows, of course. Yeah, how can and, he not be? Yeah, and probably a legend in a positive way amongst the crows' enemies. So all of a sudden, you know, now he's this mythological figure, and you know, by the end of it, by the time he like gets sick of killing him, he, he they they respect him so much, he becomes like an honorary, you know, honorary, you know, member chief of their tribe and. It's it's just sort of like yeah yeah well I extracted my um, extracted my pound of flesh, we're, we're we're all good right yeah we're good as a matter of fact you're great man you did a great job, <laughs> you know you can be a chief, it's it's just so such a different system of thinking than it than it is nowadays you know, well it's also a, sort of a different. There's an honor to it. There's an honor to it all all involved in this horrible shit that that this guy, I mean, come on, it's horrible that the crows take and kill his wife and kids and it's horrible that he's eaten eaten them and and stuff. But in all at the end, uh, it all just sort of comes out in the wash and it's like, ah, eh, what are you going to do? That he had to do what he had to do and we had to do what we had to do. So, yeah, and one of the things though, that Kind of well, actually, there were two things that that stuck out when I read the story. As I was reading it first, I thought, well, wouldn't the law come looking for him after a while? And then I realized, no, they won't. No, 
uh, because I don't think that killing Indians was technically a crime in most jurisdictions because they weren't citizens as such. It might have been, but it might have been the kind of crime that you would have needed, like, this one lawman who did it out of principle or something. Most people were probably just like, yeah, dude, if you could, you know, there were probably a lot of people, I mean. Probably willing to look the other way. Well, well, well what I'm saying is in, in the, the situation of it, both sides, whether you're the Native Americans and, and you know, I mean, however you want to skew the narrative of what happened to the native americans and how we treated them and they treated us if you were a settler you probably had if not first-hand experiences direct family experiences of somebody getting killed by a native american in some way mm-hmm. um so you could be just like oh fuck them man and they and and the native americans i'm sure had countless stories of how we treated them horribly and could be like, oh, fuck the white man. And it's it's amazing at all, but you, it's also a running theme in here. You'll hear about some guy will get filled with arrows and crawling off to his death, and then another tribe of Indians will pick him up and nurse him back to health, you know? Yeah. Even some, sometimes the most horrible serial killer white guy or whatever, you know? The, so so it, was, it was weird, you know? It wasn't as black and white as... Uh, I mean the the I mean obviously we we killed off a hundred million Indians or or whatever they ended up dying but it wasn't as pure or like the white man versus the Indian there was all sorts of little tangled things about it but in the same time if an if if you killed an Indian who's to know unless you tell anybody you know I mean I don't think. Maybe they did. I don't know if the Indians would come into town and do the sheriff and go, your guy just killed one of our guys. I'm Maybe in certain situations they would. But a lot of times, you know, it would be like crossing the border into another country and killing somebody and coming back to a country that we don't talk to, like in North Korea or something, you know? Right. So, so you could probably get away with, you probably could get away with whatever you could get away with as long as you didn't step on some white guy's toe. You know, if you were another white guy. Most probably. If it was an Indian killing white people randomly, I'm sure we would have sent somebody out after him. But then again, maybe not. We might have just chalked it up to like, yeah, they were out in the... <laughs> yeah, they, they, well, <laughs> they were close to grow territory, you know? And that's the thing. I think that happened fairly often. I mean, I, you know, you hear stories about, you know, these raids and whatnot. Or not raids. That's actually the wrong word. But uh, these people basically out in the middle of nowhere getting assaulted and then really nothing seems to ever happen to them and you know the this wasn't necessarily policy for everything but there were at least instances where the authorities would look at that and think well we knew this is dangerous territory we're not technically supposed to be out there and they went out there anyway what the fuck am i supposed to do about it you know Um, One of the other things, though, that stood out to me about this story is you can't talk about the story and not talk about the art by Lenny Mace. And it's got this normal, like, bio rights. This is an art style that I should absolutely hate. I don't like this art style normally either, but it works really well with this story. Yeah, it's just this weird cartoony slash scratchy kind of a thing. And this is this is not black and white. This is, in fact, I don't think that The Walking Dead has been black and white for a very long time. The Walking Dead has gray tones. 
Right, right. It's, it's not just uncolored line art. It's this is this is almost like charcoal drawings. Yeah, in and, a lot of ways. Yeah, and this has got gray tones to it too. But yeah, it's and I don't know why, but there's something about this that this art style that you know you could never do like a Spider-Man comic in this type of art style. It just wouldn't work. But something about this sort of charcoal type of look, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out this thing was actually actually is charcoal art because it's just got this well it's it's it, it, it um i'm on page 41 the last page of the story mm -hmm. and the middle the middle three panels i mean the way i mean when you look at how he draws the horses mm -hmm. it's not a lot of lines involved in those horses he's got them like the one where he's mounted but where they're all the shot from the back where they're all just drive walking on their horses towards the teepees mm -hmm. those horses are very stout they're almost they're, they remind me of cave drawings, of, right. in cave cave drawings where you just have a stylized sort of upside down pear shape with a tail, with a with a with a guy with their legs. Actually, it's mostly formed by the legs of the people riding it. It's just a very simple shape to evoke a horse, or like also the 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 Zen Japanese. Uh, ink drawings sort of things where you just use the, the bare number of lines to evoke it and then he adds a little bit of shading which is not really cave painting like but it, it, it's very cave painting like yeah it's just this is an incredibly original way to draw this type of a story and like I said I mean by all rights I should hate it but it's just so friggin awesome that I don't know it's, this is awesome this, is, this yeah. is great art this is some of the best art in the whole book yeah, I agree. I, you know whose art I thought really worked out in this was Sergio Aragonés and his story. Uh, I thought his story came out really well artistically for for him. It, it it seemed like maybe he put a little was really into that one for some reason. It seemed like he put oh, a little more time in it. Yeah, that's the Donner party. Yeah, that was actually yeah. going to be one of my runner up runners up. Right. Um, you know, when I was reading this, what I didn't originally completely understand you know what it was that we were getting into here and then once we finally do get to the cannibal part of the uh, <laughs> the Donner Party story I understand now why it is they wanted Sergio Aragones to draw this number yes. one no but nobody draws the way he does nobody but number two you, you having read a shitload of Walking Dead comics this isn't the kind of thing I think most of us want to see portrayed in a realistic fashion and his kind of over-the-top cartoony approach is a good way of, of doing it. But it also, it has a very, he drew it in a very, um, there's a, and he's not really a Western artist, but he was a landscape artist of old-timey stuff, and uh, uh, so, uh, this guy named Eric Sloan. Mm -hmm. And uh, it reminds me a lot of Eric Sloan, where it's, it's he's comedic with it, He's sort he's but it's more comedic with the writing. You know, his he it's got his funny style and there's funny stuff in it, you know, like you know, when the cows are dying they got vultures on them and one eye tongue sticking out and stuff. But it's got like this extra layer of detail and like it's got that dirty, gritty western look to it and he adds a, and he's just good at adding like the little details like the guy sitting in his wagon when they first start out and he's got all his food and he's got a chandelier in there and a stove mm -hmm. and a bed that's probably not too far from the truth and and 
somehow just his style yeah is perfect it, it takes the edge off it enough to make it not as hor like bleak and horrifying as it really should be <laughs> yeah as the story really is um you know especially when you get to the end when there's still people hanging around just like i don't know i ate him because he wasn't as tough as uh as the ox meat <laughs> you <Yeah>. know or whatever <laughs> well and the that actually sort of leads into this is also a good anti hutzpah anti you know un unfounded hutzpah story of just like ah well well we're gonna split from everybody else and cut 400 miles off of this and yeah there's a reason yeah, why but... that's not a good I, and and like there's more to the story there were people saying no you should there were plenty of opportunities with the Donner Party where people were like you don't want to go that way it's really there's a reason we're not going that way but they did it anyway and this is what you know they're like any of them survived yeah no kidding and that I guess broadly you know what that kind of leads into is this is one of the more artistically consistent big books that we've talked uh, that we've talked through sometimes you know well, the old West has a look, you know. I mean, that's the thing is, is it's got you know from whether we've gotten it from books or from movies or whatever. There's a you know, there's a dis- all these distinct tropes that uh, I'm sure a lot of these cartoonists don't get to play with that often. No, you know. So so they were probably really enjoying doing it, and you don't have to draw like big cities and stuff like that so that's always i hear artists hate that shit where they have to draft you know like new york city and right. stuff like that and it's surrounded <laughs> by a battalion of a thousand spaceships and yes, yeah, you. yes this is trees and a couple covered wagons and you know uh, uh mountain range way off in the distance yeah yeah so and and i just also would like to add that it's not surprising but it's just funny how many stories in this end with somebody dangling off a rope. <laughs> yeah. So many stories are just like, whoop, dangle, dangle, dangle. There's so many, so many different depictions of hangings in in this book that it's unbelievable. Uh, it's not unbelievable, actually. <laughs> it's the way they did it, but. You know, just think about, you know, when this was done. And, uh, but my other runner-up and then th- this really is going to be it for me this is the bungling bandit and the mm. only reason i'm really bringing this up is this was drawn by charlie adlard and if you just read the story it's actually which I'm, page was it oh sorry i should have I, I thought i gave that sorry uh, this is on page 66 if you actually you know read the thing it's actually a little you you almost find it hard to believe that this is in fact the same guy that does the walking dead yeah uh because his art is i mean like if you squint a little bit you can see where this will someday become you know the, the familiar walking dead style but if you just pick up any one of these panels at random and just look at it nothing about this really screams you know the superstardom that this guy's on his way to and you know the story itself i mean i think it's it's kind of forgettable it's uh it, it again it really does come down it, it comes down to the art now yeah the you know this is about kind of a screw up of a 
of somebody who just, God bless them, couldn't win for, for losing, right? And so that's fine. But the art is, it's, it's on the one hand, it's like it makes this story. On the other hand, it's really no more memorable than the story itself, except for the fact that, again, it's, Char- it's, it's Charlie, Ad- I almost said Charlie Daniels. It's Charlie Adler that drew it, you know? Uh, I don't know that Charlie Daniels draws all that many comics. I No, but I would, have, I would have been happy with a Devil Went Down to Georgia story in here. I, I, I think what stands out in this is he's really good, and it's something about the way that this was reproduced. You can... Um, and it must have been whoever did the I mean it, it, it's not from the scans it's from the original thing but uh, Charlie Adler uses a lot of just black ink black ink space in this and you can't see it as much in this story but in the other ones where they would use thick you know where, where you could tell they put the black down with a, with a paintbrush Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Charlie Adler uses it to great. He uses shadows and dark in this to great effect to uh, make a very sketched out drawing have a lot of depth to it. But you can actually see, and usually I think that's something they get rid of in the process of printing. When they paint that ink on there, sometimes you know there's two layers of ink and you'll see a little darker line. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a technical thing. And I was noticing that a lot in this reading this I'm reading it in CBR form so it's scanned from a page but I'm imagining the original page they usually get rid of that and that turn it into a full black and I was like well this is kind of uh, you know they're skimping on that then I was thinking maybe they did that on purpose for this one to give it more of an old time feel you know that you were looking at more of like a drawing that somebody did with the the old school drawing pens with the you know with the metal nibs on them and stuff like that so you see the artifacts of the of the india ink you know right it's it's just really well done yes and i you know again he's not quite to the level of mastery that i think he's at these days but you can see that you know from these primitive beginnings the guy, he was always going to have a bright future ahead of him. If it wasn't Walking Dead, it was it was going to be something else. But he yeah. was always going to go on to, I think, you know, kind of a neat, a neat little future there. But honestly, that's uh, really what I have for all of these, all all of these different stories. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that we, I think we had a lot more to say about this volume than we did Thugs. So yes you know whatever you want to read into that so now do you have anything else any other runners up or anything no i think i covered pretty much everything in my notes i i I actually had more notes for this one than i did for a lot of other ones and i was surprised with that yeah i you know if you'd asked me going into this thing like before i read it you know how much is there gonna gonna be to really say about the weird wild west i think there were certain things that kind of got overlooked you know um one one kind of common thing that uh, about the old west that we I, we just typically don't like talking about <laughs> as an american culture but it did go on is a lot of towns that you went to they would have brothels and you know you're 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 coming in after a long <clears throat> a long trip and different people like to unwind in different ways if you catch my drift and 
one of the services that a lot of brothels were known to provide, as weird and fucked up as it may seem, was actually not just hookers who are going to go into the bedroom with you and then whatever happens, happens. Enemas. What they'll do is they, they would have these glass tubes, they'd stick them up your backside and, you know, run the warm water through there. And apparently they made quite a living, a very kind of a cottage industry, you know, from giving these cowboys enemas. It, it makes sense, though. It makes sense because it's like they're providing another intimate service there, you know, so it's like the, the, the women the women who are providing sex are not are probably not going to be as shy about putting a glass tube up someone's butt and in those days into the 40s and 50s enemas were this sort of like we you know you could probably compare them to like um oh uh what do they call that you could buy it at like rite aid in your drugstore now the um the shit where uh why can't i remember that the, the the, the term for it homeopathic medicine it, you know it was it was this sort of thing it was this sort of thing there were all these people say you know it's a cure-all to everything you keep your colon clean you're never going to get cancer you'll lose weight you know it, it it's 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 that's the key to every william kellogg of kellogg's food was a big um proponent of having two or three a day you know that sort of thing so I, I could see that. Um, I, I would have also have liked to have seen how uh, a thing on venereal disease in those days, because not only was it something that they didn't have a cure for, but, you know, a lot of the venereal diseases degraded your brain. And there were a lot of characters that were probably the characters that they were because they were half crazed from, you know, some sort of VD. Yeah, like if you got the clap or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you it, you would end up being deranged, and you know, I'm sure there there were sheriffs and stuff like that that were you know had syphilitic brains, and I'm you know I'm sure history is uh, riddled with that. You know, Roman times must have been, you know, no wonder there were so many crazy Roman emperors and stuff. They were probably had brains that look like swiss cheese <laughs> probably <laughs> well this is one of those uh, subjects the the wild west you could i think you could feel fill a couple of volume or at least one volume just on the weird social trends you know not necessarily specific people or events or places or anything but just the weird fucked up ways that people spent their time and that's it i mean i because when you think about it, a medicine show, as weird as it might have been for its time, that wasn't necessarily the weirdest thing that anybody had ever seen. And I can't help thinking that there's a degree to which you and I live in a little bit more of a genteel world that uh, there's just some, the, the political incorrectness of, I don't know, Wild Bill Hickok, he comes to town and he has these mock fights with, you know, wild engines and all this stuff. If you were to do something like that today as like sort of a live performance art kind of a thing, you might get shot. 
Yeah, yeah or <laughs> you know, uh, somebody from the ACLU. They're gonna call you a, a fucking bigot, or, or some, uh, somebody is gonna have something to say, you know. But back then, I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. So. You have to find different ways of doing it all the time. I mean, we still have people selling snake oil to this day, you know. There's still people who manage to, with our laws and everything, who manage to get on TV and go, "Hey, if you put this little electrode on your on your face, it'll make your muscles twitch, and that that will make you lose weight." Patent pending. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor Ho. We have a set of Doctor Ho in here, and it does make your 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 muscles twitch. It's highly unpleasant, and like, I I. Just everybody go to YouTube and, and look up Dr. Ho infomercial and you'll see this like young Asian guy like with, with model women in in bikinis putting these little, you know, Dr. Ho attachments onto their abdomens and onto their faces and then turning it on and then watching them go twitch twitch <laughs> twitch rhythmically. It's unbelievable. Here, buy this electronic, buy this electronic torture device for good abs. Well, you got me. Uh, uh, anything else? Uh, any parting shots or anything else you want to throw in for this? Nah, I got nothing. All right. All right. Well, I could always keep talking, but I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, before I, uh, before you and I call it a day, I want you to tell everybody where it is they can find you. You can find me at 2TrueFreaks.com on a host, whole host of 2 True Freak shows guesting or hosting my own. I'm just wrapping up the season of Garage Sale Glow and Scott Gardner and I are about to make some plans on all new 2 True Freaks shows as soon as I get him on the horn. <laughs> Which so far seems to be a Seems to require an act of Congress. You know, you guys yeah. have just been so crazy busy lately. Yeah, it's it's a combination of busyness and just the sheer um, the mechanics of our schedules have not put us in you know off work at the same time together. Luckily, you know, Scott at least isn't working seven days a week, so he's been able to schedule for back to the bins and stuff like he's been getting on stuff like that so he's not completely out of the mix but we'll, we'll, we'll be getting the we'll be getting the two of us back together soon enough all right well just want to thank you again for for joining in on this this was a lot of fun and obviously we had a hell of a lot more to say yeah about this as always than i was originally planning so but you know what whatever it's always good so I think that's pretty much it for this week now as to next week i'm going to be uh, continuing my smallville retrospective as a matter of fact i'm going to be finishing my retrospective of the mighty season three so we've got that coming up and then once that's done i'm going to be continuing and really i guess going into the last laps of my batman v superman mega series so that's going to be going on too but that's pretty much it at least for the immediate future so uh, now, as to the next episode of the big, the big book report, that's going to be, like I said before, the big book of bad, and that's, again... You, I'm interested to see what, what that qualifies. I'm having a feeling it might be a little catch-all for stuff that didn't fit in the other ones, maybe. Yeah, see, that's what I was thinking, too, you know, uh, basically just... I, I Actually, I guess what I was thinking was more 
like bad luck you know instances of people having people who just uh, I don't mean this in like the big book of losers type of way but people who right. just have shit shit luck so I don't know maybe you know what fuck it you know what I think I've still got the uh, the page actually I don't so never mind I thought I still <laughs> had the uh, little blurb up here but it, no it seems I don't so whatever I guess we'll we'll find out together but the way that it is right now the big book of bad is set for that's going to be episode 149 set for release on May the 24th 2016 but again who the hell knows I mean things you know plans change all the time wow. so but uh, that's that's the anticipated release date. May, so. wow, it's not even winter yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, hey, there you have it. Hey. So I think that's pretty much it for the both of us this week, though. So uh, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Woolnatt with a very important message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film, literature, from comic books, video games, from any place we find them lurking. Beware of monsters. You can find more information by searching Beware of Monsters in iTunes, your podcatcher program, or the RSS feed on BewareOfMonsters.com. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join us now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world! Friend... Beware of Monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected.
This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. 